You are now listening to the Hunter's Advantage Podcast. I'm Christian Babcock, the host of the Hunter's Advantage Podcast. And what we do on the podcast is we talk to disruptive companies in the outdoor industry, talk about innovative hunting solutions that are changing the landscape, as well as offer you tips and strategy for more successful hunts. All in all, I just want to help you become a better hunter by providing you with high-quality knowledge and information that you can trust. Stay tuned. Yeah, I mean, we were outlawed. Yeah. They were the bad guys, and we were the good guys, so we thought. It was a 13-point typical, about a 160-class buck. Well, that was a good deer and all, but it wasn't the one I was after. Swinging that rack, just booze, booze, just mowing that shrub oak out, really? that shorter shrub. And brush was flying off his rack, points were sticking everywhere. And I was like, it's a fucking moose, you know. <laughs> I'd rattle up 28 bucks that morning. Oh my. There was 13 bucks in a line, and he was at the rear, and he was huge. He was 26-inch spread deer with like 15-inch back tines. And I knew he'd go Boone and Crockett, but everybody in town knew that deer was there. And I thought, I'm going to get him before season even gets here this year. Get near enough to get a shot. And when I got there, could have killed him. I just said, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to wait till he rubs out, and I'm going to come back and get him then. I mm-hmm. didn't want to shoot him in the belly. He was too beautiful. And the deputy sheriff step out, throw down on him, you know, what looked like automatic weapons. Drop the gun! I'm just a hunter. Drop the gun! You know, he had it up, getting ready to shoot in that direction. Well, and he pulled me over with six horns and capes. I had a spotlight screwed on the side of my gun. I had all that in the, I had all that in the trunk of the car. And this deputy was so convinced that I was a drug runner, he tore that old Coupe de Ville Cadillac apart looking for dope. They got George within 10 minutes on his first breath. If I ever kill one legal, no one will probably ever believe it. You know, I could probably have a truckload of game ones with me when I shot it, and they'd still think somehow I fudged and posted. See, I, I, there's no honor among thieves. I can't do that. I'll probably never be able to shoot one that everybody believe I killed legal. Yeah. <laughs> I've robbed sure. myself of that. Yeah. And there's no honor for me now. everybody that's listening and watching welcome back to another episode of the hunters advantage podcast 
Today I'm joined by Charles Beatty, the Prince of Poachers. Uh, we had you on, I think it's been almost two years ago. Yeah. And did on Apple and Spotify, did over 30,000 plays and then 110,000, 112,000 now on YouTube. So it's one of the biggest episodes for us. And uh, thanks for coming back and actually doing one in person. So, yeah, my pleasure. So, how's it, how's it going? How's the cancer treating you? It's days. about history, but I've still got a surgery here in my solar plex. I'm you know, waiting to find out a little more about the doctors, you know, checking out the biopsies and stuff. Yeah. He That's wants cool. to know all, everything he can before he sticks a knife to me. <laughs> How many surgeries have you had? And what kind of cancer do you have, by it's the way? It's a squamous cell carcinoma. I've had them lay my navel open about six inches to the left side. And they mm-hmm. took out of the pectoral muscle here, there was a stack of six carcinomas formed in it. Mm-hmm. Step, stair stepped in a a line like a set of stairs and that's all been removed you know what was left of that after i poisoned it and killed a lot of it but it seemed like it would never end but i know the light at the end of the tunnel is finally gonna come it's you know i gotta walk away from that that's held me back long enough how long have you had it about 18 years now really well it's it's growing in me my whole life but it got real aggressive you know Mm -hmm. 18 years ago and just like it got me but Got the right doctor, and I'm on my way out of it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's great. So I want to make it where people that have either seen the first episode or haven't seen it at all can understand kind of the story of you and, and to become the Prince of Poachers. So, I mean, just starting out, like, how, how'd you even get into hunting, not even poaching? I mean, how, how'd that start out for you? Have been, you been hunting your whole life? or? Yeah, being in taxidermy got me around the hunting and all. And, and uh, my first boss actually took me to kill my first deer at 14 years old out in Brownwood. You know, shot a doe, and then I missed a buck. And I killed my first buck later with my first father-in-law in Louisiana, just, mm-hmm. you know, sitting in a tree stand. And... I knew very little about it for another year or so and then got the job opportunity down in South Texas and took it, you know, and it was to get the big deer hunt invite on the King Ranch when I moved down there. That mm-hmm. professor seduced me with that. He goes, you know, come down there and mount all these quail for me that I sell in this furniture and stuff. And he said, I'll get you a hunt on the King Ranch. Well, that didn't work out. Well, so I had to get one for myself, <laughs> a bunch of them. But, yeah. And it led to the Kennedy Ranch a year later, and then there was no turning back. What time frame? Like, how old were you when you moved down I was to 19 Texas? years old when I moved to Kingsville. Mm. Yeah, I was married and had a, a newborn son about, probably about six months old. And I just decided that was a big job, job opportunity because, you know, I was going to be making 25 bucks an hour, and... The hunting's what drew me. I said, I'm folding up 10. I quit the Alpine taxidermy job I had and moved down to Kingsville. Mm-hmm. And uh, I worked that job for seven years, you know, and, and did all the hunting I could. I, I had to run the old lady off after about another year or two <laughs> and pursue my career as an outlaw. There wasn't no more room for her in my life when I went crazy over them yeah. big deer. But anyway, she packed the boy up and left, got rid of her, but... You know, kind of like old Jimmy Johnson. When he wanted to become coach of the Dallas Cowboys, the first thing he did was get a divorce <laughs> so he could dedicate to the, his career as the coach of the Cowboys. Yeah, I did about the same thing. Well, so what year is this that you're moving down there? You're 19 76, years old? 76, 77, yeah. Okay. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think I was rid of her within a year of getting down there. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So for people that aren't familiar that maybe aren't from Texas or this, so I think any part, anyone that lives in the South understands what the King and Kennedy Ranch are. Um, what what are those for people that don't know what that is? Yeah, from What's Corpus Christi South. Mm-hmm. You know, the King Ranch is everything south of Corpus along the coast. And then below there, even more in the southern part of Kennedy County, there's a little bigger stretch of the King Ranch. But on that east side of Highway 77 is the Kennedy Ranch below Rivera, you know. And it's a 440,000 acre total ranch, you know. I hunted the east side only. I never went on that west side. I've seen a map recently that showed me more about the west side than I knew. It's a narrow strip for a while, and it squares down in that bottom portion. It's a pretty good piece of property there. In fact, I talked to a lady a while back that bought a book. She's got some of that leased. Really? Oh, yeah, and there's plenty of nail guy over on that west side of Highway 77. They hunt them. They they see a lot of them. They shoot a lot of them. These are free range now, guys. Yeah, yeah. But I've heard of them being shot as west as Freer, where the Muir Grande Village is. I mean, they're you can't keep those things in a fence. I heard a story about a Squaw Mountain ranch up there in Jacksboro. They bought an Elgai bull, and they thought if they backed the trailer up to the fence close when they opened the gate, that fence would turn him, and he would go down it instead of into it with any steam. He'd come out of that trailer, hit that fence, just made a hole look like a nail guy in that high fence, even, <laughs> and they've never seen him since. <laughs> straight, straight into the free range, you know? Yeah. How'd you end up finding out about all this land down in South Texas? Like Just working in that big taxidermy, I mm-hmm. met, you know, this landowner and that landowner and all the outlaws, and, you know, in no time at all, I heard the history of it all. I was reading in some forums last night, and poaching in the Kennedy and King has been something that's happened for a long, long time. Like, I'd heard of people talking about shooting really big deer back in the early 60s on the ranches. Had you heard of anything like that? Yeah. Yeah, and I've heard stories that I don't know if they're true or not, but I've heard stories about outlaws being caught Mm -hmm. and roughed up by the ranch security and whatnot. And I don't know if it's true, but a guy told me one time back in the 50s, there was a couple of game wardens found hung on that high fence over there in that Canela division of King Ranch towards Ricardo. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's true. And I heard some crazy stories. It might have been just scare tactics they put out to, you know, cause a lot of attention to be, you know, make a lot of people too intimidated to go in. Mm -hmm. Stories about people never never came out, you know, went in the ranch and disappeared. In mm. fact, that was in Dick Bob Clayburg's day. What I heard was that the highway patrol came out, the, you know, with their big search for some people that didn't come out. And they said, all right, the next time someone disappears in the ranch like that, we're going to take the whole thing away from you and give a quarter acre over to every Mexican in South Texas. I heard some crazy stories, you know, when <laughs> I first got down there. There's just no telling what's true and what ain't. Yeah, I've been watching this show on uh – on Apple TV called Yellowstone, and they have like an 800,000 acre ranch in Montana, and they do some shady crap on that ranch. I guess if you have something of that magnitude, there's really no end to what you can do on it. Right. Yeah. It's like old Jeff Stanfield said on that big honker. He said, I'd be more afraid of the cowboys catching me out in the ranch mm-hmm. than the game wardens. And there's some truth to that back in the day. Yeah. Yeah. Because they threatened me like that. They threatened they were going to stretch me between two cowboys and kick my guts out. And so I sent them back a message and I said, well, if they do that, 
tell them to go ahead and kill me because I said if they do that, if they stretch me and kick my guts out and I live, I said I'm going to go buy as many case boxes of 22 hollow points as I can carry and I'm going to walk through the ranch at night and put one in the guts of every cow they got. I, didn't, I got mad. I didn't take them threatening my life like that. But the wise thing to do was when I found the Kennedy, just hunt it. I left them looking for me hard in the King Ranch, you know, after our little bout and words there, but they didn't have a chance to catch me as long as I wasn't there, did they? Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> so what's the what was your first experience with hunting these big ranches? How did how did all this get started? Like I know a lot of people call it poaching, but you you call it something different. It's outlaw hunting. Yeah. How did how did that get started? You know, those local outlaws took me and jumped the fence the first time. That broke the ice. Once, mm-hmm. you know, once my eyes were open to it, all fear was gone. Till they held that cattle roundup on me in that grassland pasture. Just picked the wrong day to go in there. But it's probably a lesson well learned. It just kept me from getting caught center probably in that type of situation. But once I found the live oaks and stuff... My backyard got a lot bigger, you know. <laughs> I, it was my childhood dream started just busting wide open. I was like, "There is a place on this planet that I can go and just be in the wild by myself," you know. And you know, I just took to it like a spaceship going into orbit. I wasn't coming out of there, you know. I, you couldn't move me then. Once I found that place, I wasn't going anywhere else. I was going to hunt it till I saw the fullness of it. Priority. I wanted to search it all out, the whole thing. And I did. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was, you know, I never got bored there. So you started hunting it when you were 19? Yeah. I, I, killed, I think I was almost 20 when my wife left. And then I, you know, I got to hunting real serious then. Mm-hmm. Then I would start going in and staying for a week. Yeah. You know, deeper and deeper. And learning more of the, you know, how the ranch was laid out. I, I learned the windmills, where to get water. You know, I learned a lot of the brush layout. And, you know, I could walk it in the dark. Years later, I knew that whole place, you know, like the back of my hand in the pitch dark. After I took one guy, and one day he said, man, I'm tired of carrying these backpacks. Let's take, put them down and take a day off. I said, all right. So we put them down, hit them in some brush. And we made a big welter that day, and, you know, when it got dark, we were two miles from the packs. And I had to bust about four bars of this brush, sand dunes, grow groves on them in a line and, and to the northwest, you know. And he said, you don't know where we're at, do you? And I said, yeah, we got one more of these brush bars to bust, and we'll be there. It'll be, be about 20 yards down, and we'll hit that little trail we went in on when we put them in there. And he goes, i got to see this. So we walked right to them. I said, there they are. And he goes... I don't believe it. He was telling a friend of mine about it afterwards, and he goes, how does he do that? How does he leave a backpack somewhere in the middle of that place and then walk back to it in the dark without a mm-hmm. compass or anything? He said, I don't know how he does it, Larry. He said, but one thing I know, I saw him do it. <laughs> yeah. Well, because I think it's important for people to understand that nowadays we've kind of electronified maps, and everyone's using Onyx and HuntStand and all these apps, and you guys aren't using any of that. Are you are you using even using paper maps, or are you just out there, there walking around? There was a around? time when yeah. we took paper maps, and old uh, Big L, I call him, he's gone now, but he had this little laminated pocket-sized miniature map. Yeah. And he could see fence lines in the brush, and he knew exactly where he was by that when he was going by himself. Mm-hmm. But when we hunted together, I said, you don't need any of that when you're with me, and he saw that, you know. 
Did you even use a compass or anything like that? I had one, you know, yeah. but the only time I ever got turned around in there, I was on that 27-day hunt. It was raining cats and dogs for about three days in a row, and I was just disgusted with the rain. It wasn't cold, and I saw my tracks three times. I was walking in circles. The rain was pouring straight down. It wasn't cold. It wasn't coming out of the north. It was just a downpour, yeah. a deluge, you might call it. And I started laughing when I hit my tracks the third time. And I said, if the game worms are tracking me now, they're dizzy by now. <laughs> I said, I'm, this is going to be funny. So I walked off my trail, got in the brush, and watched my trail making a cup of coffee, warming back up. I was soaked to the bone marrow. And I didn't see anybody walk up on my trail, so I had that coffee. And then I had a direction from there, and I started my direction. I saw some good sign. I ran up this big old downhill deer. He had big bases. He had a huge body, black deer. And his tines were rickety like arthritic fingers on an old granny, you know, just mm-hmm. crooked shape, wiggle to the points, pencily. He wasn't any good, but like I told my buddy George when I come out, I said, I was so disgusted with the rain, I shot him anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and George started laughing, but by the time I got to him, and I wanted to go check him out, but it was raining so hard by the time I got to him, he'd moved on me as I shot, and I hit him a little back through the liver, and I didn't have much blood trail anyway, but I took a few steps up the blood trail and was watching it disappear in front of my own eyes from all the rain, and I just got real disgusted, and I said, Hell, that deer, I'm going back to camp and get dry. Mm-hmm. So I went back to my pre-camp, dried out, you know, got stripped off and got dry and got in my sleeping bag and got me warmed up. I was, you can get cold even in a warm temperature if you're soaked. Yeah. You, know, you soaked all day, you get cold to you. But, you know, I've seen some good weather, great weather, bad weather, and disgusting weather. I'm that sure was it. it all. Well, I didn't want to hunt. I said, I'm going to let it ch- let up. I'm going to mm-hmm. see a change in the weather. And there's times I'd have to lay up for two or three days in the heat and let it pass. Because when it's getting real hot, you know it's fixed to change. You don't need your headset to tell you the weather. You know by that real strong heat to change. And then when it starts bucking out of the southwest, here it comes. You can bet on it and be there in three or four hours. Yeah. One thing I want to I want to touch on is so what was the first buck that you actually shot at the ranch? I know you said you went hunting right before you turned twenty, but what's the first deer that you shot on the ranch? In the Kennedy Ranch? Either ranch. Well, it's the first deer that you you poached off either of those ranches. Which one? Yeah. Well, I shot three or four bucks in that King Ranch grass country before that cattle roundup. Mm-hmm. They were just plaque mount one thirty five to one forty bucks. But when I went to the Kennedy, I shot one better than all of them on the first day with old Harry Riskin. And he was a heavier horn buck, a lot prettier. You know, he's certainly a step up the ladder. And within another year, I had shot Big John. I'd rattled up the scarecrow for George. Things started shifting into a whole nother level, you know. Once I figured out what time it was there, you know, you could cover so much more ground that it was inevitable. You were going to find a giant. If you kept moving and kept rattling new territory, they'll defend. But I shot a 153 two hours before George killed that 178 scarecrow. I mean, after that, we never went downhill. We just kept shooting deer bigger and bigger and bigger, you know, Mm -hmm. every year. Well, what's it like the first time you go in there and you shoot the first deer that you poach off one of these ranches? Were you guys nervous about it at all, or was it just something – 
um, something that was normal down there. <laughs> Ignorance is bliss. Yeah. Me and George were so miserable, and it was frosty night again, the first two bucks we killed together. We built a fire at a windmill. We had the heads hanging in the windmill frame. It was just beautiful. Yeah. And, uh, you know, back then, they weren't expecting someone to do something like that. I mean, it was about 11 miles off the highway, and that road that led back there was so grown over with grass, we could tell nobody had been using it for a while. Now, he shot that buck running right up that bar ditch. And so we just didn't figure anybody would be coming back there that night. And so we camped right on that windmill. And you guys are shooting these deer with... 30-06, that trip. Yeah, but you're not using a suppressor. You're not doing anything Nothing like that. Nothing to silence the shots back then. And that's because just because purely of how vast the land is. You're not even worried about people rolling up on you. And if you are, you're confident in your ability to get so away. So thick, we felt like we could run and get away. Yeah. Yeah, and I, at that point, I hadn't been bothered with the helicopters, but that's a whole nother game when that starts going down, you know. So you started off with the king, and, and why'd you quit hunting the king? Well, that open country's so dangerous. It's risky. Why is that? Well, you can't move around without maybe someone seeing you. Mm-hmm. I mean, a, a cowboy could see you from a mile or a mile and a half away and run you down on a horse. Mm-hmm. You can't get away once they've got you spotted in that open country. There's nowhere to hide. You know, you don't want to put yourself in that position. I was in it that one time in that cactus. I didn't want to go back into a situation like that again. So how many times did you hunt the king before you said, screw that and all this open yeah, stuff? Yeah, I've been there four the... or five times. Okay, so you yeah. killed several bucks off oh, that place. Oh, yeah, I killed four bucks, I think, out of there, mm. you know, in the 135 to 140-something class. And then you started moving over to the Kennedy. How long, did you only hunt it for a single season, or how many seasons did you hunt the king? Just, a, I think, a season and a and the next year in the fall mm-hmm. was when I went back after that real big deer. And in October is when they pinned me down in that cactus. At the, at the key? Yeah. See, I, there's stuff I hadn't told on a podcast that's in the book. I'd seen that buck in the velvet in August and passed him. There was 13 bucks in a line, and he was at the rear, and he was huge. He was 26-inch spread deer with, like, 15-inch back tines. And I knew he'd go Boone and Crockett, but everybody in town knew that deer was there. And I thought, I'm going to get him before season even gets here this year. Yeah, in velvet or before or he after was in velvet? velvet. Yeah, and I crawled and got stickers all in my arms to get near enough to get a shot. And when I got there, could have killed him. I just said, "I'm not going to do it. I'm going to wait till he rubs out, and I'm going to come back and get him." Then I mm-hmm. didn't want to shoot him in the velvet. He was too beautiful. I had him at 200 yards with a 243. So I go back, and I went on a Monday because I figured. Nobody would expect someone to be hunting during the week. They'd figure everybody's working. No, yeah. they were running the cattle out of that particular pasture that morning. They were pick, pulling the calves out of there. And, I mean, they liked to got me, you know. I, you've heard the story, but they pinned me in that cactus about four hours right before I was willing to, you know, got completely quiet a couple of hours before I got up and made a break and run out of there. When they pinned you down in the cactus, they you confirmed that they actually saw you. No, they did not see they me. They didn't see They you. never saw me. Mm-hmm. If they saw me, they'd had me. Yeah. They never saw me. I saw them first. Mm-hmm. There was a cowboy and one horse come over the swell this way and one come over this way. I could hear them hooting and hollering and whistling. And as soon as they started down that drawing, I saw them. I look up, and there's a helicopter coming right at me, right on the ground. <laughs> and I just wheeled and dove into that fork in that cactus yeah. and buried up and stayed there. But, uh, man, they went right by me. They turned came straight at me. 
And the closer they got, the more convinced I was. They'd seen me, and mm-hmm. if they were fixing, just go, whoa, and pull up to a stop right on me. Come out of there, you know, and have guns on me. Yeah. They blew right by me, this thunderous sound of them horses, and the, I could hear the dirt falling off them hoofs and, and hitting the ground. And I just knew they were pulling to a stop any second, but they just went right on by me. How close do you think they were to you? I could have spit on them. They could have spit on me. They were right on each side of that cactus from me. It was just this one big, lone pile of cactus. And the cactus pile was a little less than the size of this room. Not very big. No. Yeah. It was barely enough for me to hide in. Yeah. I was using it for a deer blind. I got there, <laughs> I got at it before daylight, and I said, I'm going to hold by this where I can stay hid from the deer and make a move from it and crawl to the deer to get a shot. And then it turned out that that saved me. If I hadn't been by the cactus when they came over them hills... I'd had it. They'd seen me. So that was, was that your last straw on the king? That was it. I was done, except me and George did hit it at night. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, that's another story on the other side of the highway. Yeah. Is most most of the deer you're shooting are during the day? You're you're not spotlighting most of these deer. Yeah. We did some night hunting, but, you know, and it's fun. It's got its own twist. But I liked seeing the deer coming yeah. in and you know, the drama play out i love seeing them run in i like seeing them come in several at a time and you know square off at each other and seen some fights and i've seen them close you know i've seen some rough fights close but you know it's 10 times the action in broad daylight you yeah know? and you've got a better assessment of which one you want to shoot you can judge him better when you're talking about two or three different deer that are all over 160 inches mm-hmm. you gotta weigh them against each other you go well that one's got this but he ain't got the, you know you gotta pit them against one another and decide if you want to shoot any of the two or three i've seen two or three really big deer at the same time yeah and I've only shot it. one of them but when it's a when it's an automatic you're gonna kill it monster that's mm-hmm. usually a deer all by himself yeah he's done whooped everything off of it mm-hmm. he's got that it's his territory that's like my freak you know, he came in bull of the woods. Done run everything out of there. There was no other deer near there. Yeah. He was guarding this short shrub, little old circle, about eighty yard circle. And he was you know, had his rubs all the way around the edge of that. Yeah. It was out in a big vast area of live oak. But any kind of a small short shrub visibility area, they'll get on that and guard it. Really? Yeah. They, they, that's their territory. That's it. That's home sweet home. That's where they were born. Likely they've lived there their whole life, you know. And they feel like that's their house. Yeah. They guard it. It'd be like if a guy kicked in your door and came in your house, you'd pick up a gun and start shooting. That's the way yeah. they are. Guarding their home. Yeah, that makes sense. Maybe you could tell the story of the freak. What, what made that deer well, so special? The character, he had it all. I actually prayed for that deer that morning. You know, I described him to a T. I said, I want a heavy horn buck with the double handlebars, you know, some freak points, knobby texture, chocolate horns. I mean, I, if I'd have wrote it down on a list to Santa Claus, exactly what I asked for. But I'd been able to walk real quiet for about 80 yards to enter about the center of that little short shrub area and then i just decided to take a right turn and get in this 18 foot tall live oak on an edge there and as i was coming in i was poking my ears with twigs and so i turned my head and when i turned my head to keep and get my ear poked i saw this big old gnarly heavy rub that rub was just bushy pretty good sized live oak the trunk only about six inches in diameter yeah. and i knew i was right in the big deer's bedroom 
And so, boy, I started getting quiet as I could. I tiptoed on in and got down about probably about eight, ten yards in. And I took a knee and eased my backpack off, knocked an arrow on my bow. I had no compound bow then. I was shooting aluminum arrows. I just had a sight pin rack. I didn't use a peep then. I just closed one eye and one penny. It's a lot quicker way to get your aim. You just get a good standard lock on your corner of your jaw. Yeah, a good anchor point. Good anchor. So I picked up the horns, and I always kept my gun close enough to reach in case I needed it. <laughs> and I mean, I hit the horns after I'd rubbed a little bit. I hit the horns, just please. And as soon as I hit the horns, I mean, I heard that buck coming immediately. I think rubbing had pulled him. I think he pulled on up. I didn't hear him, but I think he walked up quietly on a trail because mm-hmm. he was so close when I first heard the sound. It was incredibly close. And I just started, as soon as I went, coos with the, the horns, I heard coos, coos, and I thought he was leaping 20-yard bounds right at me. When I saw him, he wasn't, but I'd already come to full draw. I thought he was going to leap in that bigger live oak right in my face, and I just dumping air down his chest about eight yards or less. And... When I saw him, he wasn't coming to me. He was coming across. And as he was coming across, he was just swinging that rack, just booms, booms, just mowing that shrub oak out, really? that shorter shrub. And brush was flying off his rack. Points were sticking everywhere. And I was like, it's a fucking moose, you know? And so I knew I he went on around behind some heavy, thick edge there, and I knew I had to put the bow down, get the gun. I wasn't going to have a bow shot. I couldn't run an arrow through all that thick edge. I couldn't see him anymore. He got behind it. And so when he comes to a stop, he's about to win me. It's what was really pressing at the moment. I was like, he's going to win me any second. I'm going to lose him. But when I started setting down that bow, I think he heard that aluminum arrow going, dink, 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 dink. I got it set down. I picked my gun up, put it on my shoulder, and he's just standing there just all pumped up. And I mean, seconds turned into minutes, and I was like, I gotta do something. I gotta make something happen. I'm gonna blow this. He's gonna take a few steps and win me. So I put the gun down on my leg and reached behind me and grabbed one rattling horn and just threw it on the other. And when I did, he came. I knew he'd come or go. <laughs> I figured I might take a snapshot over here in that one opening if he left. So I was throwing the gun back up quick to get on him, do what I had to do. Boy, he came. Please, 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 right through that wall of brush. And he was standing straight at me then. He just hit the brakes when he saw me. I just broke his neck. His chin hit the ground first. I ran up there. I couldn't even move him. I had to turn around and put his head between my legs and grab both bases and just start heaving and dragging, trying to get him out of that thick brush where I could roll him over to cape him off. And old Tom East, we'd heard he'd been riding a donkey in that thick brush. I could hear this donkey braying. And I mean, I set a record on how fast I've ever caped one off. And I got moving, got out of there, and, uh, you know, I've told this story before. It was later in that afternoon. I'd actually ran across George's tracks. Thought I'm going to catch up with George and show him this deer and tell him I've heard that donkey and get us out of this area. And I've tr- lost him in some thick stuff. And I said, I just got a book and get out of here. So I p- picked up the pace and ran somewhat jogged, you know, for a while. And I got way down a couple miles in the South Finger. And then I come back up towards this barn windmill. And uh, I was in this beautiful area and I couldn't resist. I go, I got to rattle here. And I did. It was late afternoon. The wind had shifted back. It was 11 o'clock in the morning when I killed the freak. I'd rattled up 28 bucks that morning. Oh, my God. That shows you how many deer on a frosty morning. It was December the 5th or 4th. Anyway, I'm sitting there and I rattled once, and I'd rattled up 28 bucks that morning. Oh, my God. That shows you how many deer on a frosty morning. It was December the 5th or 4th. Anyway, 
I'm sitting there and I rattled once and I waited and I was about to rattle again and I heard this metal on metal jingle right behind me, like 20 yards behind me. Boy, I turned an ear to it. Sounded like the spurs or metal works on the saddle. I think it might have been the bit in the horse's mouth. I, I got up and I tippy-toed. I just grabbed this and that and was just, you know, backpack on one shoulder and I tippy-toed out of there as quiet as I could never look back. But they had apparently... Called in the troops. Here come a bunch of horse riders and trailers, and they'd let them out, and they were just pilfering around in that area trying to pick up tracks and, and all. But that was a real close call, real close. How big was the freak? He's 171, mm. and he had 15 scoreable points, 21 points total. But Taylor made. I mean, if God's ever answered any deer hunter's prayer for yeah. a description on a buck he wanted to kill he did that day because <laughs> that was exactly what i asked for and that was exactly what i got and the way i killed him the rattling him up point blank like that i told some friends of mine i said that the the oscar went to that one that was the academy award winner right there his performance was unequal I, i've never seen one do that before yeah you know not like that he's full of aggression you know he was letting everybody know you're in my territory and i'm fixing to kick your ass and that's what he intended to do you know life was great for him till he ran into my seven millimeter away <laughs> yeah i mean i think one of the big misconceptions i pe- i see people uh when they talk about your book or they talk about the podcast episodes you've done is i think a lot of people think you guys are killing all these deer at night i don't think they realize how when you you know because when we think of poachers we think of people shooting deer out of truck with a spotlight and you what you guys are doing is actually you're out there rattling bucks up you're actually hunting and the only thing that's wrong about it is that someone else's land yeah no permission yeah 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 george was doing a lot of night hunting when i met him he'd get dropped off on the king ranch late after getting drunk and walk around with a five cell flashlight and shoot bucks and cut their heads off you know rattling them up at night on 141 there in the King Ranch, he'd killed 15 bucks just that fall before Mm -hmm. I met him. I mean, they were all 150, 55-inch deer, some with 23-inch spreads and big old heavy bases. And when we parted for that season and I decided to come back up to Fort Worth for the summer and chase the girls, he threw 15 racks in a dumpster. Mm. Just bro- he he had them in my apartment. He just broke them in half, and we went out there laughing and threw those racks in the dumpster at my apartments and drove off. <laughs> Gosh, dang! I mean, one man's ceiling is another man's throne. George had killed deer like that every year his whole life. Mm-hmm. They didn't mean much to him. Yeah, he was still looking for those one eighty plus bucks, you know. And he found them later. <laughs> what was you all's main uh, like method for getting all these bucks? I know, like you were talking about in the book a lot of your stories are rattling bucks up and you know and and where we hunt a lot of the time you're thinking about uh when you're rattling bucks up it doesn't they don't sometimes they respond to that but the way they respond to you guys just makes it sound like they're 100 percent pure wild never seen a person yeah there's a lot to that but i think it's um the game you get deer that have been around populations of people and pressure and they're weary. Those deer down there are game as a fighting cock. Yeah. They don't know any fear. It, it's it's all about, you know, survival of the species. And they're just game roosters mm. getting their territory and rattle them up. And they come in there and see each other. They're fight in front of you. You know, they're they're just game as a rooster. That's mm. the only way I know to describe them. 
Your game is a fighting cock. How'd you get started on the rattling thing? Was that something that all everybody your outlaw buddies there were, did it. They were like yeah, rattling? Everybody's been doing that for years down there. Yeah. Man, because it was so successful, you know. If you went, you, you took rattling horns. It was just the way everybody hunted. Yeah, there wasn't no sitting up on a hill spotting stuff. There wasn't no thrill to sit in a stand and shoot something. That was like assassination. We didn't, yeah. we, you know, shooting something off a feeder like that, we just call that assassinating one. <laughs> we wanted to go out there and play the game and mm-hmm. outwit him, you know, and see him fooled. Yeah. You fool one. There's nothing better than to fool one having him be point blank looking you in the eyes at four or five yards before he realized you were even there and he sees you laying down there against that backpack and he's all eyes right on you and stuff and he just freezes for a second and every hair on him standing up straight up and then he starts shaking and quivering and every hair on him starts laying down till it's slick as a baby's butt and then pow! Yeah. <laughs> just, there's nothing like that. You get to see it all. Yeah. Yeah, that's the experience of killing them deer, rattling them up. There's nothing like it. Now, I don't know what it's like to sit in a stand and just shoot one. I'd be bored to tears sitting there waiting. Yeah, well, I don't think most people will ever experience what you guys probably experienced right? with. It you- ruined us. Spoiled rotten. I mean, right. Like I told this first podcast I was, I was on with the honker, I said, I'm ruined. What is there for me now? You know, I, I guess go to Canada, go to other states, you know, start hunting bears. <laughs> yeah. Well, you still have your hunting license and everything, right? Oh, yeah. What well, is I'm not there a, for? I'm not a convicted felon. Yeah. No, it was a felony the next year after I quit, after I was caught and quit in 1999 in Texas. It became a felony. Mm-hmm. It was time to turn in my towel. You know. Is that ultimately why you quit doing it? Is it because of the felony? Well, I'd already went through a lot of spiritual things that had changed my mind about it and all, but I'd also gone through that bad divorce and had my son taken from me, and I was angry with the state, and I kind of had to simmer over that. I had to kind of call a truce, and the real truce comes in part, too, because I get to tell what happened. I get to you know tell my side of the story. You know, I'm very angry at the state of Texas. You know, a, a judge on the People's Court, Judge Pirro, mm-hmm. she's my hero. <laughs> she told one lady there in court that was taking her child away from her husband somehow had done that. And she said, whatever gave you the idea that you could take your child's father away from him? She's my hero. I'd like to see my ex stand trial in front of her. Yeah. <laughs> for all the perjury and forgery to steal custody. I'd like to see her answer to Judge Pirro. <laughs> yeah, she sounds like a rock star. Yeah, she's my hero. <laughs> <laughs> so I think a lot of people aren't going to stand or understand how wild and, and, and Western you guys really got. How far back in these ranches were you getting before you even started hunting? How are you avoiding the pressure that's on these ranches? Yeah, I didn't like to start hunting before I was 12 miles deep, at least four miles past the backside of the Riskin Ranch where I started doing my hunting. I'd like to get at least four miles east of there and then hunt south and then hunt. 17, 20, 22 miles deep. Make a big, I'd make a big cannonball loop. But I've walked from Sarita at the highway all the way back 17 miles deep and hunted for days and then walked all the way back out. You know, you'd be surprised how far you can walk hunting if you just put your feet to it and go. Yeah. When I, you know, when you love deer hunting as much as I did, sky was the limit. It never entered into my mind. The work part of it 
It was yes. play. I've always been guilty of playing a lot harder than I was willing to work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it sure sounds like it. Yeah, I think that's true for everybody. At least we'd like to. Yeah. Yeah. We'll fish harder, hunt harder than we'll ever want to work. Yeah. yeah exactly. So how how big is, is one of these ranches when you're 22 miles deep into one? How much how much further you got to go to get to the other side? I could have gone probably another four miles at one point, and I'd had my feet wet in the Laguna Madre Intercoastal Canal. I mean, I almost got to that shoreline out there, and at a point further south, it dips in, you know, to the west, the water, yeah. and I could have reached. I was above that. I was due north of that. I could have went due south and hit water, you know. And there was times we hunted the brush south. It was the Telephone and Beretta Pasture, and they're in southern Kennedy Ranch. And George, one time, he hunted the furthest east. He got back there. <laughs> he stayed seven days. I got to tell that story. I need to branch into telling more about George. Yeah. Who, the, who is George? George Moore was my outlaw hunting buddy. Is he the one that got you into it? Yeah, no. He, he was already well into it, but I was too. But then yeah. we partnered up. Okay. Okay. So, anyway... Me and my brother were going in on a hunt, mm-hmm. and George went in on a hunt the same night. But what he did was he, he had Exxon drilling rig information. He knew where new wells were. So he calls. This is one of the funniest stories he's ever told me, and it's what he did. He calls a vacuum truck to suck that drilling mud out of them pits, you know, mm-hmm. where they can transport it out to disposal. And he had a plan to be at the bunk gate about six miles deep, and when that vacuum truck came the first night, he was sitting there waiting, but he wasn't on the right side of the gate. He mm-hmm. was on the wrong side. And when it went through that big snap gate, instead of using the push gate, the bump gate, they closed that thing. He waited till that guy got to the cab that was working the gate, and he made a dash over the fence, and they took off so fast he couldn't catch the vacuum truck. So what he did, he went back to the highway, hitchhiked in, called mm-hmm. another vacuum company and ordered another truck out there. He knew how things worked on the rigs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he used a fake name, told him the name of the rig that was in progress drilling. Bring me another vacuum truck out, so-and-so, I'm the foreman, so-and-so. He just lied to him. Well, here comes another vacuum truck at midnight. And there again, this time he's on the right side of the fence, the east side, and he's up in the brush. When they start pulling off, he jumps up on that back of that vacuum truck and he rides about 15 miles Deep all the way the to that east coast. Okay, there's a straightaway all of a sudden when the road quits winding and he knew he'd hit that last curve. Well, they were balls to the walls. They started punching it and when they hit that straightaway, he knew he had to bail. So he bails off the back of that vacuum truck, backpack, gun, and all, and just flips and flops and rolls all in the ditch. <laughs> He gets up and goes south to the brush to the Beretta pasture. And he stayed in there seven days and killed 13 bucks. He said, I know I shot 13. You know, he took a 22 Hornet and he took 29 shells, but he came home with no shells. He had to shoot some of them there a couple times to kill them, but he said he brought three out. But he, he had a 24-inch spread eight-point, he had a big old heavy 10-point with a fork, and he had a 20-point buck with about a 21-2-inch spread. I've got pictures of them. But he had left so many deer laying dead during them seven days that a week later, another friend of mine came from Fort Worth and went Mm -hmm. back there and hunted that same area. And he got scared because he saw all of George's back and forth footprints in every direction up and down, excuse me, up and down fence lines. And he was scared. So he got out of there. Buzzards all over all these dead deer. 
And he said, the buzzards were so fat they couldn't fly. He said, but they didn't need to. All they had to do was hop from mm-hmm. carcass to carcass. <laughs> oh, oh boy. Oh, George. You know, he, he did that because he said, I was never going back. That I went there that one time to see that depth of it in that area of the brush. And he spent every night in a cabin, an old line shack back there. And so he'd approach it at dark, see if anything was cooking, anybody driving around to check for tracks. And he said he was just about to go inside it to camp in that cabin that night, and he heard this big bang, and it scared the hell out of him. It sounded kind of a gun going off. Mm-hmm. And he said then he heard splash, and he looked, and this owl, a barn owl, had flown into this windmill and then just folded right into the tank, the overflow tank. Oh my <laughs> he said gosh. that scared the shit out of him. But he said, <laughs> Once I saw what it was, I went in there and slept like a baby. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, how is he killing deer with a twenty-two Hornet? Where's where's he rattling them up at twenty yards, just shooting them in the Adam's apple with a really? Hornet? I'll just drop them and kick. He killed three in one rattle. He had three good bucks come up within twenty to thirty yards of him and broke all three of them's neck. He said they were laying dead within twenty yards of each other. Really? Yeah, George was crazy. You know, he did stuff that I wouldn't do. Mm. You know, he's wilder than hell. You know. <laughs> George had a grudge with the ranch. Yeah. They caught him so many times growing up as a child, you know, young boy, teenager. And they knew him. one time they jumped him and two buddies, and he'd left his wallet laying there where they were resting and sleeping. And they just spotted him driving right by him in a thick edge, and the truck backed up. They took off running. Well, they left George's wallet laying there, and it was old Butch Thompson, King Ranch Security. He called him a day or two later, and he goes, Buddy, come on over to the courthouse and pick up your wallet. He said, I almost got you, didn't I? And he said, I don't know who stole that wallet out of my truck, but I figured it'd show up somewhere. And he goes, come get your damn wallet, George. Yeah. (laughs) But it was a joke back then. Yeah. It was a cat and mouse game. Now they'll hang you. They'll take your gun truck and put you in prison. You know, the, the good old days are gone. Yeah. But George grew up in those days. I don't know how many times he'd been caught. He's mm-hmm. used, he used aliases over in the Jim Hogg Robert East Ranch and got away with it. Really? I mean, he went to jail there, and he used a different name, and they booked him under a false name, you know. Mm-hmm. You know, he's dead now. I can tell whatever I want about him, you know, and he'd, like, he'd, he'd want me to do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's no shame in his game either. He was a proud outlaw. And when these buddies of mine went in with him, he took a guy. My other buddy Dennis took his son, and he killed his son. Killed this two hundred thirty-inch double drop buck. When they came out, I was in on my twenty-seven day hunt. I didn't find out about that deer for a month. But when they came out, George was so angry from being caught the year before, or two years before, and the stuff he said in confidence to him they used against him in court to make him look bad, make the judge go harder on him. Well, he was mad about that. So he spread the word. He, he said, I want him to know I was on the hunt that big deer was killed on. And mm-hmm. so by the time I got out, it was buzzing like a saw from South Texas to Denton. They went up there and pulled that little kid out of school and arrested him and took him down and interrogated him. The game wardens tried to pressure tactic the kid mm-hmm. without his parents being present, yeah. which is illegal. You know, he was 13 years old. They pulled him out of class. I mean, there was stuff the game warms did. It's questionable, the legality and all. But they couldn't find the deer, so they didn't have a case. Yeah. But they filed on him anyway. I mean, there's some things about Parks and Wildlife I don't understand. If you don't have a case, why file? 
I mean, Ronnie Brooks was a game warden up there in Wise County, then out Throckmorton. And Ronnie would catch you like that. It was questionable. And he'd laugh, and he'd say, I almost got you, didn't I? He never would take you to jail or write you a ticket till he had you dead yeah. to rights. Everybody respected Ronnie for that. They knew he was a fair game warden. If he caught you, he'd burn you. But he wouldn't play games and break the law and bend the law mm. to make a case that he knew wasn't going to hold water in court. Yeah. Ronnie wouldn't do that, you know. Everybody admired him for that. Now, I wish we could say that about all game wardens, that they yeah. had the integrity that they're supposed to have that they expect and want us to have. Mm-hmm. And it's a two-way street. It ought to go both ways. You know, you, you'll find that if you get a warning on a ticket from a cop, you'll slow down. Yeah. You won't get mad and say, ah, he caught me, but he won't catch me next time and just keep on speeding. I've always, you know, given a lot more respect towards officers that understood, well, you weren't going at seven miles an hour. Pay a little more attention. Mm-hmm. That carries a lot of weight with people. The way Mike Fain treated me with respect and dignity when they caught me was worth a fortune. What he did was genius. He knew not to mistreat me. It wouldn't do any good. It yeah. just turned me real bitter. And so he handled me with care, you might say, with respect. And I respected him for it. That's one of the reasons I quit. I said, finally, I've got my dignity back. I can quit now. I can quit being angry. I can quit being hostile towards them and taking it out on the deer yeah. and the game wardens. It's not their fault what happened to me. And it was how I laid it to rest. You know, but um, a lot of these young wardens need to take you know some lessons from that i know mike was a veteran game warden he knew how to handle things better than rookies and stuff but a lot of these rookies need to learn that you know if if they're fair and and treat people with respect instead of going around with this bad attitude like everybody's guilty or something mm-hmm. well, i know y'all have done something here when i find it out i'm gonna get you you know that's all nonsense that's just childish behavior you know if they come on as a man and treat you with respect you'll get respect back and we get more respect for the game laws then. Yeah, absolutely. Makes you want to do right, you know. If I ever kill one legal, no one will probably ever believe it. You yeah. know, I could probably have a truckload of game ones with me when I shot it, and they'd still think somehow I fudged and posted. See, I, I, there's no honor among thieves. I can't do that. I'll probably never be able to shoot one that everybody believe I killed legal. Yeah, <laughs> I've robbed sure. myself of that. Yeah, there's no honor for me now. Yeah, I did kill a moose legal, you know, whether they believe that or not. But you know, that's like I'm saying, I can do it legal, and I still probably won't get any credit because they know my past. Yeah, you know, I'm a branded man now, so you know, whatever. You talked about taking it out on the deer. Isn't that one of the reasons you guys uh, started killing as many as you did? Because you were you're supposed to be invited out to the king ranch to hunt or or the kennedy i'm not sure which one and you guys started doing it illegally because all the bureaucracy and all the people that wouldn't let you right yeah yeah it was the age old robin hood mentality we're like well they won't let us go and we'll go anyway did you guys feel like you had some right to go because of all the things you've been promised well the ranch never promised me nothing. Yeah. Who was it that told you they this were going to get This professor, the NI University Marketing Management professor, and it didn't work out. It's too much of a corrupt political, you know, tyranny. That's yeah. what I call it. I mean, mutiny on the bounty or something. <laughs> that 
game warden, lady, the lady taxidermist that was married to the game warden, that was as corrupt a ring as you could form with the ranch. They bowed to her and him because he was a game warden. Well, that's uh, official oppression, as far as I'm concerned. You know, uh, an officer of the law shouldn't be able to use their badge for any kind of persuasion of any sort. You know, they shouldn't. They can't go to school and tell the teacher, you got to pass my kid, I'm a cop, I'm a game warden. You can't use that against the public and, and, or, or with, for political gain, influence. And that's what we saw going on. And then, of all things, he shoots this deer in the refuge where he wasn't, no one was supposed to hunt that refuge. And he killed this beautiful monster buck, and then it got out. But he'd shot this big buck in there, and the townspeople were buzzing like a saw. They go, oh, no, that's not happening down here, and they got him fired. The game warden? Yeah. They got him dismissed from the state, and then the ranch just spit in their face with it. They hired him private security. They liked him. See what I mean? Talk about corruption in the highest level. Here you got a game warden at the state. They had to fire him. They had to let him go. He did wrong. Mm-hmm. And then the ranch just buddies on up to him. You know, that's hypocrisy. So that, that was what me and George hated about it, you know. And it was like uh, they wanted to control other people's lives with jobs. You know what I'm saying? If you did anything wrong in Kingsville, you were out. The ranch could get your job. They could, you know, lean on your boss and stuff and make you get fired. They could take your job in a lot of cases. We heard of it. We didn't like that either. You know, they're bullying around the peasants, they called them. That's what they thought they were. They thought everybody but them were just peasants. The King Ranch had an arrogance to it, you know. You know, I don't know what else to say about it. We we had a way of justifying what we did, you know, in our minds. It, It didn't make it right, but we looked at it. I mean, we were outlaw. Yeah. They were the bad guys, and we were the good guys, what we thought. <laughs> yeah. I mean, was there ever a time, you know, where you and George are hunting the ranch that you guys ran into any other poachers or that are hunting it at the same time as you guys? Or did you guys have pretty much free reign? I've seen drug runners, but I never saw other hunters. But, I, you know, one night, I'll tell this story. I was bringing two guys from Mexico with me. I'd moved to Mexico City for three years, and I'd been down there and met some people. And I met this man that owned a game ranch at uh, Tampico, Mexico, by Lake Guerrero. And he came, and his foreman, Bernardo, came, and they made a hunt with me. And we didn't get about five miles deep. And I'd walk, one of my tricks was walk this old down fence line. It was just post. The wire had been rotted, busted loose in it. And we see a flashlight working. And it's clearly another outlaw hunter coming off the main road, mm-hmm. coming up in there to settle down in the woods and wait for it to break daylight. And I just stopped him, and we watched him. And then when he came to a stop, you know, we just circled around without turning on any lights and just went around him. But that was the only time I can remember ever walking up on another poacher in the Kennedy Ranch. What about drug runners? I mean, what, what did you see them. then? I just... saw six of them carrying backpacks full of dope. Really? Yeah, about 11 miles off the highway. Hmm. Due north, you know, they knew where they were going. I think I might even know the guy at that time. I, I think I knew the guy they were going to meet up with to haul it on out of there. 
how did you go so long? You know, this was the span that you hunted at 26 years, 22, 22 years. Okay. 22 years. And that's amazing. Especially with all these people you said coming up to your taxidermy shop, knowing that you're doing these things, how, how, what was your main strategy for like avoiding detection? Like how, how did you make sure that people didn't know or couldn't find you? Well, I'd go in in the middle of the night and mile after mile after mile on my way to be dropped off at solid brush and then i had a trick where i'd get dropped off south of there in this open grassland but i would think every time i went i said i'm sure glad i'm the outlaw and not the game was trying to catch me look i'd look at the odds and i'd say this is a shot in the dark for them to ever encounter me in the only location that they can which is while i'm on the road yeah. trying to drop off or pick up that was when i was vulnerable but even then i'd think of it as I passed those last 10 or 15 miles, I'd go, there ain't a way they can ever encounter me on the drop-off, and it's about as, you know, less likely on the pickup. Because I'm out there watching heads up, seeing anything going on when they'd come, you know, close to getting me there. And yet they did once, but the odds are so against them, it's a bummer. It's like, I wouldn't want to be a game warden. Tough job. A lot of long hours, bored, trying to find somebody that's a shot in the dark to even locate and encounter they got a hard job to try to catch a walk-in hunter you know i'm sure some of it still goes on yeah you know them old locals that are raised down there and you know they've got close friends that'll drop them off and pick them up but it's just that the odds are so in the favor of the outlaw that's how i got away with it so long you know i had the odds in my favor but you know, people do get caught on their first try too. That's true. <laughs> it happens. Who were you having drop you off, and and how did uh how did that work? How did you coordinate the pickup? How did you know how many yeah. days you had been in there? Yeah, it was all predetermined. Right. I had this guy that was a genius. He was a he worked on all the jet engines out there at the Naval Air Base. Mm-hmm. He was Hawaiian from Hawaii. His name was Reggie. Reggie was a wizard. And he'd been pulled, he'd been pecked on and pulled <laughs> over sometimes. But even then, he'd outsmart him. You know, mm-hmm. he'd go back. We knew that if he was any heat on him, he'd be two more hours getting back down there. Yeah. And the one time he got pecked on and pulled over, he just went back, got another vehicle, came back two hours later, repeat step one, you know. It, you got a good, your man on the road's got to be as good or better than the guy in the brush. I'd say better. You know, to, to connect. Yeah. And if something happens, you know, he's got to deal with it. If he gets pecked, he's got to know what to do and then deal with it and come back, you know, make a second run to pick you up. You guys would you guys would agree on a plan beforehand. You'd say, I'm going to oh, hunt yeah, this many days. Time to the minute. I actually would have Reggie just beep his horn gently as he passed southbound. So it didn't matter if it was raining or foggy. I'd be looking at my watch, and to the minute, I'd know he was fixing to be there. Mm-hmm. And then I'd see a car going southbound, and I'd listen up to it, turn my ear towards it, and then beep. I'd go, there he is. He'd go down, sit in this litter barrel about three miles south of there, and just stay lights out there till the traffic cleared. And he'd try to do it in about three minutes, and then he'd be northbound and show up in a you know, total of five or six minutes from when he beeped. And, boy, when he came back, he'd be on the minute. And he'd just pull up right on the mark, and I'd load. You know, it was that simple. It was five or six seconds they had to catch that going on. And if it was fog, mm-hmm. I kind of pat myself on the back late season when you could do this. It wasn't no supernatural power I had. Yeah. But I knew the season, and late on into January, 
them cool nights it after a warm day it would fog about 1 to 1 30 and i would tease my friends when i'd have them with me and i'd say now fog lord <laughs> and they'd say oh you can't call down fog and i'd say watch <laughs> about 30 minutes this heavy fog would fall and settle into the area yeah. and then you could barely see the cars from 400 yards off the highway going up and down it mm-hmm. i said all right now we got about 10 minutes it's time to move to the fence yeah you come to the fence from 400 yards back that last five minutes so i stayed clear of the road see that's one of the reasons i was never caught before were you not worried about all the heads and the the skull caps and all the stuff that you got in the truck driving back up to Fort Worth? Nah. Why not? Because it tags a carcass tag. I so got, you'd tag it as a legal yeah, deer. Yeah, coming in part two, I get stopped in Carn City, north of a town called Kennedy, Kennedy below Seguin, another iron, 15, 20 minutes. And he pulled me over with six horns and capes. Oh. I had a spotlight screwed on the side of my gun i had all that in the, i had all that in the trunk of the car and this deputy was so convinced that i was a drug runner he tore that old coupe de ville cadillac apart looking for dope and he i literally bluffed him i bluffed him right through there i mean game wardens would have held a banquet in his honor for catching me but yeah. he didn't know what he had or who he had my name meant nothing to him. Yeah. And he said, are you sure all these deer are legal? And I said, just get the game warden up here. I'm in a hurry. I got a long way to go. I said, the tag's a carcass tag. I've already told you. I said, it remains with the carcass. The meat's back being processed at the deer processor in Corpus Christi. Well, okay, if you say so. I said, well, if you're still in doubt, call the game warden. I, I just want to get loose. I'm done. I'm, I'm not a drug runner. I don't know why you're trying to tear my car apart. Mm-hmm. Well, I get a lot of drug runners through here, and I said, well, good luck catching them. I hate the bastards, you know. Yeah. So I wheeled off and left him, and was laughing all the way to Fort Worth. I thought, that's the stupidest deputy. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I, called him, I called him Deputy Dog, you know. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So what would you have done if the, uh, if the game warden had showed up? Or, or what was your plan? I was probably going to be hassled third degree. But I knew that was my only hope of getting let loose free was just bluff, bluff my way out. That was the only card you could play. That was it. I played my aces all at once, and it worked. I got stopped with a 180-inch buck in Austin by a motorcycle cop, and I had two other racks there in in the front seat. And I was I had them up front so I could just enjoy looking at them on my way back. Yeah, just skull and caps or with capes. Just a sawed off skulls. Yeah, and uh, that motorcycle cop was so happy he snuck up behind me and got me going ten over in middle of Austin. He just kind of giggling, mm-hmm. he's smirking, smiling, writing the ticket. I said, "What do you think about them deer horns?" He goes, "Don't care a thing about them." <laughs> Stupid cop. And I said. Well, that's a good one there, isn't it? And he goes, I guess, you say so. And he just kept writing and smiling. He thought I was just trying to act like it wasn't a big deal that he was getting, giving me a ticket. Yeah. And uh, I drove off from that guy laughing. I said, Parks and Wildlife would have held a banquet in his honor for catching me too. And he didn't have a clue who I was, which was great. You know, I was glad of it. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, I've had some encounters coming home with, with you know, some out of season. Me and that first cop got pulled over. We mm-hmm. had six heads. We had we had that stuff, two backpacks and all those racks and capes with sand all over them, laying all over the bed of the truck. 
mm-hmm. and we were in his brand new big red truck. Well, he didn't have the front plates on. Yeah, because you have and to have both in we Texas. we came up on a highway patrol. We got behind them. They started looking in the rearview mirror, and they saw no front license plate. All they have is paper tag on the back. So they slowed down. We go around them. They lit us up. <clears throat> so he said, stay in the truck. Let me talk to him. He gets out, and he goes back there. And they made him put his hands up over his head because he had a big knife on his belt. And they said, turn around. He pulled the knife out, and they said, all right, show us your ID. Well, when he pulled the badge, it was over. And he said, what are you doing? He said, ah, oh, me and my buddy been in South Texas hunting. He said, he's, he's taxidermist. We're taking some of these back to be men. And he said, all right, see y'all later. Really? <laughs> we went right through that, you know. But, you know, that badge was code blue. Mm-hmm. It was over when he saw the badge. And, you know, this guy started laughing, you know. I looked back there and saw him laughing. I go, it's over now. He then showed him the badge. <laughs> it sounds like you had a lot of luck and fortune on all these these yeah. close encounters. Yeah, man. There's a bunch more of them, but I, you know, I'm gonna have to you know write as I think think back and remember them all. Yeah. So yeah. one cool thing you were talking about in the book is, like you said, people were following your footprints and stuff. And what was a way that you combated people actually following your tracks? What did you do about that? Well, over west in the Robert East and the Pilon Co, you leave a bad track in that red dirt. Is it soft, real soft dirt? Yeah, it's a type of dirt that's fine, and it will make a good imprint of your boot sole, even dry. And so George and Dennis have been going over there, and they've been taking tote sacks and wrapping them around their boots and then duct taping them. It'd still leave a mark, but you couldn't tell which direction it was going in. But I didn't like that. I said, they could still track to you if you had to hole up in some heavy brush, and they'd walk right to you. I said, that ain't no good. So I got to thinking long and hard, and I thought of the mop-bottom boots, and I thought of how I would attach them where I wouldn't have to re... They would have to undo that, cut it loose, mm-hmm. and then re-put their boot on the next day, and then rebuild it, re- rework it on there. Yeah. I said, there's got to be a way where you just undo your boot strings and get right back in a boot that's already got something. So I thought of the mop-bottom boots, and I drilled them 10 holes in that sole, them combat boots, and I sewed it on their parachute cord, you know, with a wire needle and all. And, man, I mean, it saved our ass over there because Dennis was leaving a mark, and I'm, I saw it. We got seen, and we were being followed, and I got him in front of me, and I stomped all his marks with the mops and just erased them. Mm-hmm. And we, it saved us. We got in this heavy brush, and they were walking all around us. We could hear their clothes dragging off the brush. I mean, 10 steps or less. And, I mean, we just had to stay face down with our you know, arms around our heads like this, keep the camo on our arms over our faces where they mm-hmm. couldn't see our ears and anything. They were right by us. They could have probably just nearly spit on us at one point. And you could hear them talking amongst themselves, and we couldn't move. We were stuck there the rest of that day till dark. What trip was that? Did you guys take any big bucks on that trip? Well, George killed a 20-point buck with five drops. <laughs> oh, I've got pictures of it. On the end of the right beam, it was broke off going up and down on the brake. It looked like one of those deer that you see with the 15-inch big old club drop time. Yeah. It looked like what broke off was one of those, like you see in Webb County. Really? Yeah, it was a big drop time broke off of it, and there was a point going up or the beam going up on the brake. There were both points broke off of it. Probably 15, 18 inches of bone broke off right there. Mm-hmm. And it was still close to 180. Really? <laughs> yeah, with all that broke off. Anyway... He sold that deer, traded it to have a couple of others mounted that were better looking bucks. But, you know, that was George. But, you know, it was a two-day hunt. 
were to meet him on the end of the second day, five miles north at the north end of the ranch. We went in on the south end of the ranch, but we had all that heat. We were surrounded, and, you know, the next afternoon when it was quiet in this one spot, we didn't know we were near a fence line or anybody else, and somebody pops a shot 200 yards from us here comes the troops again surrounded us again who popped a shot some other outlaw we thought it might have been george but man when that shot was fired they swarmed it again several Mm -hmm. vehicles pulled up four-wheelers and men bailed and started working it trying to find tracks and i told dennis i said i forgot one thing he said what i said a shovel he said what would you do with a shovel and i said i'd dig a hole and bury myself i wanted to be out of that ranch really i didn't want to go back i never went back to the robert east that's another big ranch that you guys yeah. were on that's about a ninety thousand acre ranch over there still by kingsville no it's west of hebronville three and a half hours west of kingsville but i gotta tell you a funny story if you want to hear a funny one yeah while I was in on the war horse hunt, George Clifford, a buddy of his, big, barely red-headed guy, I've hunted with him before in Kennedy, and that's another funny story. But anyway, they had a guy named Tracy, I believe, from San Antonio down there, and they went in on Robert East, and they left their backpacks at about five miles deep at a bump gate and some brush, and they split up. Clifford and this Tracy guy went one way, George went another way. This is when he used the alias. They rattle up two big ten points on the first rattle. Kill both of them. So in no time, they were swarmed by men and, and surrounded, and they caught Tracy. Clifford took off running. He made it across the road, and he got in real thick brush, and he lasted the whole day without getting caught. George didn't know they'd been caught. They'd been pressured, and only one of them had been caught. And so he's over there rattling, and he hears the brush breaking, and he thinks it's a big deer coming out of this thick edge. And so he picks up his rifle, and it's a game warden and the deputy sheriff step out, throw down on him with you know what looked like automatic weapons. Drop the gun! I'm just a hunter. Drop the gun! You know, he had it up, getting ready to shoot in that direction. Well... They got George within 10 minutes on his first rattle. They caught two out of three on their first rattles, all right? Mm-hmm. The signal was when they came back that evening to the backpacks, they were to whistle, but if someone whistled back, that wasn't them. So when Clifford came back to the backpacks after dark, he was about 75, 80 yards from that bump gate in the packs, and he goes, and they whistled back. And he knew they weren't supposed to. And so then immediately headlights come on and they crank the truck and start running down there at him. They saw him. Jumped over in the brush on the north side waiting on them to get to him. And they skid to a halt. He'd already come back about 15, 20 yards and where they'd think he was, you know, further back. And when they skid to a halt, he runs across behind the truck, leaving them thinking he ran to the north and he went to the south and he went about six miles to the road. And he, there was a guard shack. And when he came back past that little guard shack, this guy was there trying to stop him. Stop, wait right here, wait right here. You know, he was mm-hmm. calling out the trips. Well, Clifford had left all his camouflage in the ranch, his gun, his backpack, not his backpack, his other hunting-looking stuff. Took his <clears> boots <throat> off. I knew he'd left something else. He took his boots off where they couldn't match his boot to the tracks he'd left in the ranch. I mean, his daddy taught him that when he was a boy. These guys were second-generation outlaws, okay? He starts walking up the pavement. It's real cold. All he's got on is a white undershirt and jeans. And here comes the security for Robert East. And one was a deputy game warden, and he had some other men with him. 
And they said, all right, Red. They started calling him Red because he had that old bright red hair and this big old burly mountain of a man. And he said, you might as well. We done caught your buddies. They've already gone to town, paid the fine, gone home. They're back in Kingsville now. And he goes, I don't know what y'all are talking about. And he goes, I'm going to find your gun in the morning, Red, and we're going to make a case on you. You might as well admit what you did and we'll give you a ride on into town. He said, I own that store up at Heavenville. No, uh, Rendell. And that's about 26 miles south of Hebronville. And he said, you're not going to use the payphone there. I've already closed the store down for the evening. And he goes, well, I don't know what you're talking about. And he goes, you might as well come on in a minute. So they pulled up beside him two or three more times while he was walking to Rendell. And then they blew him off and left, went home mm-hmm. to get some rest. They were going to get his gun the next morning. Yeah. So he gets to that stop sign. And he hides in the bushes waiting on, you know, first he was hitchhiking, nobody would help him. So he hid in the bushes and a flatbed truck comes up. When it stopped at the stop sign and took off, he ran and jumped on the back of that flatbed truck. And he got up under by the cab, there was a tarp. He pulled a tarp up over him and he rode 26 or 28 miles to Hebronville. He's going through Heavenville on the back side, on the north side, fixing to come out. He goes over these railroad tracks and it wakes him up. He fell asleep. He was so tired. On the back of the flatbed. Yeah. And, you know, it's freezing cold. <laughs> well, he beats on the back windshield and they go, hey, get off the truck, you know. So he, they stopped and let him off. He went over to this motel and he got a room, called his wife in Kingsville and said, get over here right now. I've got to get down there and get my gun before daylight. So his wife comes over to get him, and he starts downing coffee, getting woke up good, and gets a yeah. snack. And so when they're going south through Randall, that little store set right off the intersection, and the light was on inside, and he said that deputy game warden was at the gas pump with the pump running in his tank. He was inside turning on lights and stuff. And he said he went down, got his gun, and he's coming back, and uh, the deputy met him head on halfway to that stop sign so clifford couldn't resist he pulled into that store and there was this little old blonde girl in there about 17 she's working he said your daddy own this store she said yes he does so would you give him a message for me he said, yes i will he said tell old deputy dog that old red got his gun out oh my gosh <laughs> and she said I'm sure that'll make him real happy. You know, Clifford couldn't resist. He just had to rub it in. Well, you know, he beat him. He whooped him again, you know. But yeah. it, that place was too hot. Mm-hmm. I told, And I knew guys that killed Boone and Crockett monsters out of that ranch. But you're not going to get me back in there anywhere, you know, anymore. But at that point, after an inside look, I said, I'll never be back in that Robertie's. They can have that ranch. I'm not going back over there. But Clifford put it on that old deputy dog. <laughs> that's, that's hilarious. Yeah, that's one of my favorite stories I've ever had any of my outlaw friends tell me. No, that was a good one. Yeah, he went with me one time and Harry Riskin in the Kennedy. The day after I shot the freak, we went right back to that area and was going to try to find another monster. I told him how many big deer I'd seen in that area. It was a warmer day. They weren't coming to Horns as good. And they were going to split up and go together. I was going to hunt alone. And I said, hey, I said, um, no, me and Harry were going to hunt together, and Clifford was going to hunt by himself. And we were going to meet up on a Sendero that we parted at from Riskin's east side. And so I said, oh, Harry asked me. He goes, has Clifford got a compass? I said, I don't know. Let me ask him. I said, hey, Clifford, you got? Did you bring your compass? He goes, what do I need one of them for? He said, 
way I figured, the highway on one side and water on the two others, he said, you can't get lost. Yeah. <laughs> he took a three-yard step. The guy was a monster, you know. Yeah. But we met back on that Sendero, and, you know, I said, I'm thirsty. I'm going to get on back. We were just going to make a one-day hunt. It ended up being about a two-thirds of a day hunt. It got hot. I knew they'd shut down, and we were just planning on a one-day hunt anyway, so I went on back. I walked them and beat them to the risk and fence line, but... You know, there was times that I would go with Harry and maybe one other friend, and we'd be back in town at 8.30 that evening, you know, looking at our big heads, eating a steak and potato that mm -hmm. my girlfriend Betty cooked us. Yeah. I mean, we were living the life, you know, hunt the best place on planet Earth and then have a steak dinner by 8.30. You know, you could do that with him owning that property seven mm -hmm. and eight miles deep. It was a bird nest on the ground. You yeah. Know, heaven on Earth. Did you? So, what are you doing to support yourself? With this? Are you still just doing taxidermy? No, I'm selling the book right now. No, no, no. I'm talking well, about when, back then. Back then. Oh yeah, I mounted about a thousand quail a year for that big taxidermy. Yeah. And I'd do that in six months and hunt and fish the rest. Really? I didn't go down there to work, and make money. I went down there to hunt. And then when I found that Gulf Coast fishing to be like it was, the surf, the bay, uh, that's all I did. Mm -hmm. And when every year my boss knew when September 1 hit and dove season opened, I was gone. He hated it. Really? Yeah, he didn't like seeing me quit, you know, just lay off the job. But mm -hmm. he, he, you know, I was worth too much to him to get mad and fire me. You know, he knew I was, I was going to hunt. You know, I said, Joe, you know I didn't come down here to make money. I come down here to hunt. Now, turns out I come to hunt and fish. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. That's <laughs> He put up with a lot out yeah. of me, you know, as a boss. But this other friend of mine, Pat Lane, that's coming out with his book next, when it hit bird season, he'd come pick me up on his way home from selling these plants every day at 3.30 when he got off. Mm -hmm. By quarter to four, we were on our way dove hunting. Yeah, man, we'd kill 70, 80, 90 birds a day between the two of us and pick every one of them. His mother being there stewing up a batch of, you know, smothered doves while from the ones we you know killed the day before while we picked the ones we just shot. I mean... South Texas is just, it's too good a hunting. You know, once it's September 1st, you hunt all the way into January or, or yeah. more. You know, you don't even look up. Yeah. Do you think the, the the hunting or the poaching that you guys were doing, do you think someone could do that today on a ranch that size? Or you, or you think no? <laughs> uh, I've been asked this question before. I've been told it can't be done. Yeah. yeah. It could be done. Think you so? Yeah. You could get caught too. Is it worth going to prison? No, because they put me in prison. I'm 65 next month. I ain't got time to spend five or ten years in prison. I beat this cancer. I fought long and hard to do it and have any time left, quality or otherwise, to even live and do anything, and I'm not going to throw it away in a jail cell. Yeah. I ain't doing it. I ain't, like my old buddy Roy said, I ain't doing the deal. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I feel like back then it was it was so little of a punishment that there's really, even if you get caught, there wasn't a big, right. there's not a big disincentive to not do it. What was funny was when I got caught, George said, I don't think you'll quit. He said, but I know it'll make you a better hunter. And I said, hey, you figured? He said, the bucks that you normally have sneak up on you when you drop your guard and quit paying attention. He said, that won't happen anymore. Mm -hmm. He said, you'll be heads up for anybody tracking you or coming near your game or anybody walking up on you. He said, you'll see that big buck that you normally would let get away. And he was right. 
The year he got caught, he killed a Boone and Crockett the next year. The year Dennis got caught, his son killed a Boone and Crockett the next year. <laughs> really? They were on their toes more. Yeah. Yeah, I made a better hunter out of both of them. He was right. But I quit. I had too much to lose. You know, at that point, I'd had enough. Can you tell us a little bit about the, the buck you called the war horse? Oh, he was a beauty. Yeah, he's a beautiful deer. He had twin scissors on the back tines. Both those, tw- one was an eight-inch point. I could pull a picture and show you, but he's in that book. Yep. But the fork on one side surpassed the next upright. It come off the back tine, and it went past the next one a couple of inches. Mm-hmm. And both bases had finger-length spikes. Really? Yeah, beautiful. And, you know, twin forks, had another fork over here. But he's a 177 plus, nearly 178 buck. Uh, you know, I outsmarted that deer not once but twice. But I was by myself. It was December the, I believe the fourth. Yeah, yeah, it was December. No, it could have been the third, but I think it was the fourth. I went from an area north of there, straight down a fence line, open country, and hit the brush in the evening, late afternoon, about four or five in the evening. And I, they had cleared that fence line. It was a new fence. There was brush piles that they pushed live oak into. And there was a big stand of brush. And I really made a mistake by getting beside it. But I thought it'd make good cover. But it just happened to be that's where the deer came from. Mm-hmm. The bottom he lived in and guarded was just down below there 400 yards. And I had a flex cord, curly cord, onto my spotlight, wired into the motorcycle battery in my backpack. I want to do some night hunting. And so I'm tied to the pack. And I took the pack off, sat down, and I rattled. And I mean, just right up behind that brush pile and just stop. Well, he's looking at me through the brush, but I can't see him. I don't have 100% guarantee it was him, but I know it was him in my mind because he was guarding that bottom below there. I yeah. know it was him. And he, while I was trying to figure out what to do, I, I wanted to get loose from the pack so I could step past that brush pile and peek through a hole or just see him as he left and try to get a shot. I knew it had to be a big deer. He just froze on me. So seconds turned into minutes when I reached in my pocket, got my knife out, cut that flex cord to free me from the backpack. And I took a few steps past him. When I got where I could see all the way around that brush pile, he was gone. I never heard him make a sound leaving. A big buck can do that. My little one will trample out of there and make noise. A big buck knows how to set his foot down on soft sand all the way out, and he left without making a sound. It wasn't windy. I could have heard anything at all, and he just disappeared. Well, I was sick. I went, that is a monster. So I made up my mind to just go right back up that fence line and hold in that brush and sleep there that night. And the next day, I was going to go back after him and circle with the wind in my favor and come into that bottom at a different angle. And that's what I did. And I got down into that bottom, and I knew I was about 400 yards from where I'd rattled him up even before. And I hit the horns first time, nothing happened. And I hit them real loud and hard again about two minutes later and set them down. And as I was just starting to set them down, I could see him. He was just leaping these 20-yard bounds over knockdown, you know, fall out of the treetops from hurricane years. And he saw me in midair. When he saw me in midair, I knew he saw me because he looked right at me and he just stuck a landing right behind another brush pile that knocked down. He was look peering at me right through that hole. And, man, I put the scope on him then. I'm on one knee, had a perfect rest, sitting against a big live oak. And, I mean, we're eye to eye. I'm looking at him through the scope, and he's looking right at me. And, I mean, I've got to take the shot. He, he goes, he's gone. i got to take the shot. I followed down through his neck with the crosshairs, and I got where I could just see the shoulder area through the blur. He reared up on his back legs, 
and then just shot out of there. And I didn't know if I'd hit him good or not until I got there. 60, 70 yard shot. I went on over there and I went to where I last saw him and I was expecting him to be bleeding more by then if he's bleeding at all. And it was just like you took a water hose and was blowing blood out of a water hose. Not one way, both ways. Mm. Every step. He, he leapt all the way out of there, okay? Every time his lungs exhaled, he just blow blood out both sides. 110 or 15 yard half circle and there he laid. The bullet went in about as big around as a nearly a 50 cent piece and came out a little bigger. High on the rise, it went in on the rise, see, because that deflected through the brush pile and then turned come up. And it went in at one elevation and then came out up closer to the back of the spine, you know. It double-lunged him, cut the artery under the spine because it was so high. Yeah. And that's where all that blood was coming from, so that artery blowing over into the lungs and him blowing it right back out the holes. Mm. It was one of the most gruesome, longest blood trails I've ever seen. It, yeah. you know, I knew he'd be laying dead any minute at the end of it. When I saw him, it was no surprise. But I went up to him and started looking him over, and another nice buck came running up. Really? <laughs> yeah. That's how good the hunting is in there. Yeah. You shoot, and you get one down. And another bucket heard the rattle, too, still on his way in. And they hadn't been used to hearing gunfire like that. They didn't except, know what that was. Yeah, except when those helicopters would get up and scare them so bad, they'd go hold up and didn't tie the two together. But, you know, a single shot like that didn't make sense to them. Been hunted enough to know. Yeah. You know. Yeah, that war horse, that's one of my prized trophies because I outsmarted him that second day. I know, you couldn't tell me it ain't, and when I see God, I'm going to say, I'm right about the war horse, ain't I? <laughs> you say, yep, that's the same buck. <laughs> that's funny. So what's the, out of all these hunts you've been on, I think you said you killed 116 bucks, right? We brought that many out of there. Yeah. I think I killed 73 of them, and that's not counting all the camp meat. Yeah. Yeah. I, I added up. Well, I put it this way. I listed a while back the ones that my 7mm08 killed out of the 116, and that was 73. Really? Yeah. Yeah, I've got a story coming here in Tarrant County that's real funny. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you want me to tell that one? I sure. Will? Everybody used to say, well, you're not the king unless you're the king in your own county. Yeah. So one year... As it got close to fall, these buddies of mine started telling me that he was seeing three big bucks out here at this wildlife refuge west of Fort Worth up at Lake Worth. Between there and Azel, there's what they call the Nature Center. I would have never thought to go hunt there, but he said he saw this huge buck with 14-inch double drop rack, big beer cam bases, multi-point handlebars, and another one with one drop tine, and another one with a real typical rack. And I thought... Well, that's worth checking out. Mm. <laughs> and the game wardens had been swearing they were going to get me. And I thought... The Tarrant County yeah, game wardens? Well, I was hearing about it. They said, we're going to get him this year in the Kennedy. We're going to be waiting for him. So I thought, what a beautiful thing to leave them sitting down there waiting on me, slip them a Mickey looking for me there, and hunt right here in Tarrant County. So I started hunting this buck. And the first time I went in there, I went in there and jumped him immediately, and I was not expecting that. I didn't have my light tied on my gun yet. I went in about midnight. What I did was there was a bar across 199. It's called Paradise, Pair of Dice Bar. Mm-hmm. And I parked my old Coupe de Ville there, 
but I, not until I had dropped off my Gunham Spotlight on a little side road to this 200 acres next to the park. Okay, I knew they were cutting through that. Well, that's where I was going to enter, so I go in there, and I don't walk probably 400 yards into that property. I ran across the highway, got to my gun and all, backpack, got geared up and started in. I didn't have it wired on yet, and I was just going to assess the situation, maybe even leave my gear and make a recon look and then plan my hunts. I was going fig- I figured it was going to take me several trips, yeah. and it did. But what happened was I jumped this big buck point blank. I couldn't even light him up, but he was—he had to be one of the big ones, probably the big one. The body on this deer was so big. I'm walking in at about 40 yards in the dark. I see this deer, and I go, there's a deer right there. And then I see it pay attention to me and throw his head up and immediately haul ass. And I was like, God, that when he flashed and I saw the white flash as he wheeled, and his big old tail, big old rooster tail come up, and I went, that was the big deer right there. I'd done blown it. I said, I've blown it. I mm-hmm. won't get him tonight. Well, I walked around all in there that night, and about 5 in the morning, I saw these two pair of eyes, and I said, I'm going to ground check one of them. One of them might be him, because they mm-hmm. were supposed to be three together. Yeah. But I figured it's probably the lesser two, because I thought I'd, you know, I was convinced I'd seen the big one. So I shoot offhand about 115, 20 yards. I barely caught this buck in the sternum, but the bullet went all the way down and was under his skin by his pecker, you know, mm. when I found him. But I didn't find that deer the rest of the night. And, I mean, I put my gun and backpack down in that 200 acres next door where I shot him, but the blood trail went across the blacktop road over into the park. So I was like... I got to find him, cut his head off, and run out of here. I ain't going to be able to cape him. I ain't going to have time. It was breaking light on me. So I'm on the blood trail for 500 yards, steady, good, dripping blood trail. I'd slice the bottom of his heart or cut the wall of the heart, and he mm-hmm. was bleeding. And a spleen artery, you know, that low, I cut the spleen artery, and he was bleeding. And he bled out. And I found him after 20, 30 minutes after daylight. Well, I cut his head off and ran, you know, all the way back and got out of there. It was a 13-point typical, about a 160-class buck. Well, that was a good deer and all, but it wasn't the one I was after. I was still after the big one, and I saw the single drop time buck three times other than that and passed him waiting for the big double drop with both. That deer had a broke-off drop. Mm. So I was like, he's a younger brother, and I don't want to kill him while he's young, and with a broke drop time, I'll leave him alone. I might shoot him in another two years or something, but I wanted the big deer. That's the way I always been. It's like you know, I go in a bar, I ask the prettiest girl there to dance. Well, when I go hunting, I want the biggest deer I yeah. know is there if I've seen him. Mm-hmm. And I was on to him, so I wanted him. And I didn't get a shot. I would light him up. I, one morning, I went in and I put 400-yard drip line of dough and heat piss. It was that old get-a-buck brand. And it wasn't even breaking light yet. And where I screwed up was I didn't have a black lens cover on the spotlight that was screwed on my gun it was just light enough that finally as he got about 35 yards from me he was coming from drip to drip to drip of that dope piss and i saw one of the big drop tines coming down over his shoulder and i go it's him and i started up every time he'd move again i'd start putting the gun up a little higher and i got the gun facing him where he could see that reflector in that spotlight and he spotted me and looked over there took off 
jumps big old high leaps and leaps across this creek and disappears in the brush on the other side. Well, after that, he really knew I was after him, so I was really having trouble spotting him again. And I walked upon him at night one night, and I could smell him real strong, his old pissy hocks. And I go, there he is, he's right here. And I heard the doe squirt, and I heard him squirt behind her. And I let him up, and he would run this way and that way and this way and that way and keep a tree between me and him, them cedars in that area. He was using them cedars to block my view. He was smarter than hell, smarter than any deer I'd ever been after before. And so I had a close counter with him then, and as he crossed one deal, I could see all the trash sticking out and the big old drops, big old fat bases. I knew he was exactly what the guy told me he was then. Yeah. I never did kill that deer, but I went on some morning scout recons, and what I did at old Cadillac was quiet. And I drove right up beside this guy in an old blue Chevy truck. And He's sitting there with his motor running loud. He didn't hear my Cadillac pull up right beside him, and he had binoculars looking out into the buffalo pen. There was a high fence buffalo pen, mm -hmm. about a seven-foot fence, and they kept the bison in there for people to look at traveling through the park. And he knew that big buck was back in there, and he had his glasses on him looking at him back in the timber. And I couldn't see the deer, but those buffalo were right in front of his truck too. And I, I watched him. I go, he's, he's on to that big deer, and he's trying to get him out of here. I said, he's probably got 22 in the truck. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I said, there sure are some ugly critters, aren't they? And he liked it. Went through the cab of that truck. I scared the shit out of him. He, he had a guilty conscience, of course. And, and, you know, he felt like I was probably a warden or something at first thought. Well, then he looked at me and he goes, yeah, yeah, they're ugly as hell. And I said, yeah, have a good day. And I drove off and I knew I'd wrecked him with the buck. Mm -hmm. Well, the rumor got out that that big deer was killed. Yeah. And the game wardens thought I got it. Once they figured out through the grapevine that I was hunting that deer, they started watching it, and mm -hmm. I quit hunting out. I did kill the single drop deer later about midnight one night on a Friday night at midnight. I rattled him up and shot his ass, you know. Mm -hmm. So I got two out of the three. But I took that deer out whole. I wasn't going to let them DNA match me on that one, you know, because I was going to probably show that head to some people. But what I did was I caped him off, backstrapped him, quartered him, left all the guts inside his rib cage, didn't bust him open any at all. And I just, first trip, I took the quarters and the backstraps and, and the cape and the head to the road about two miles away. Then I came back and I took that carcass and just shoved it down in my backpack with the neck sticking up out of it, <laughs> strapped him in. Picked that up, carried that my other gear out of there, and never went back. But, uh, you know, my buddy, Big L, came the next morning to see the head, and he looked at it, and he goes, well, I was going to finish the story because this is a funny part. I walked across the highway to the Cadillac and circled around and came in on that side road, and I had all them quarters in the backpack with the car carcass in it, and I just pulled that Coupe DeVille door open and threw that front passenger seat forward. And I started throwing quarters in the back seat of that old Cadillac right on the fuzzy seat, you know, blood everywhere. <laughs> and I mean, it was more fun than getting to do a double axe murder on both my ex-wives at the same time. I was laughing my ass off, threw it down in drive and peeled out of there and went out the back way. But my buddy Larry come over the next morning, he saw that rack and he saw that carcass in the alley and he goes, you be a deer hunting motherfucker. <laughs> you know, but, you know, he said, now you're the king in your own county. You're the king now. <laughs> yeah, but I got two out of three. But I don't give anything to kill that big double drop one, though. He was he was a King Kong buck. He was a gorilla. Did you ever hear of him getting killed? That one guy in that blue truck's who I think shot it. Really? I told the game more than this story. I told Larry Osborne. I said, I know who killed that deer. 
He said, well, we thought it was you. I said, I did not kill that big deer. I said, that guy in that blue truck is the one that shot it. It was a blue Chevy truck, an old one. It was one of them $100 trucks. When the law got severe, where they take your truck, when they made those confiscation laws, restitution, confiscate your vehicle, all that. When that went into effect, every outlaw in South Texas bought a $100 truck and a $50 gun they could throw away. <laughs> Guy, has, well, he was working on that protocol. He had bought this old jalopy truck in case he got caught. He wasn't going to be losing much, you know, when they seized it. Right. He knew exactly what he was doing. He was a Tarrant County local outlaw. I didn't know him, you know. He was probably in his late 30s to 40s, saw him that day. But I, when this all comes out, and when I tell that story in part two, I'm going to say, all right, you know who you are. You owe it to me to show me that head. You have to come forward and take me to look at that buck. The one drop time was about four fingers wide like a boat oar. It had a paddle to that one drop. And that one was two inches longer than the other side. Had a 12-inch drop on this side, a 14-inch drop on the other side with a big palmation. Parson Wildlife should have some pictures of that deer. No telling how many people walking that park had photographed that deer. Yeah. I mean, surely somebody had took a good picture of it. He was crossing 199 to the uh, south side of the freeway. Yeah. And spending summer times over there some. You think he was a 200-inch deer? He was a 195-ish deer. I don't think he'd go over 200, but he was scared the hell out of it. You know, Mm -hmm. he he was that big. Yeah, he could have went over 200. He was just everything you could ever hope for. Yeah. Now, he was the limit on what you can expect a whitetail to have. Gosh dang. That sounds like an awesome buck. I didn't know you had any Tarrant County. What had happened, I heard they stocked those deer to start with in the park. Parks and Wildlife did. All right. Like genetics? They starved to death. They had to take down the high fence on one side that joined that 200 acres private property. When they did that, big bucks were getting run over all up and down 199 towards uh, Azel. Between Lake Worth and Azel, big bucks were getting hit every year crossing the freeway in the rut. Big deer, 165, 170-inch, 10-point bucks. You know, they just went everywhere when they let them out of the park. So I think it was a stocked genetics Mm. by Parks and Wildlife till they had to take it out of fence down. When you're in there hunting these ranches, what's a what does a bag dump look like for you? What do you got in your bag on when you're going on these week long, two week long? Oh, my gear? Yeah, what all kind of I gear? I had a little Teflon skillet that was ultra light. I had a metal coffee boiling pan to cook water in and I, I you know, I made oatmeal. I fried oatmeal pancakes. I fr- I took a lot of bisquick powder, you know, to batter my meat with and i take that bisquick powder and mix a little of that with uh, dry oatmeal and stir it up and then pour hot scalding hot water in there on that and stir that into a dough mm-hmm. and then flatten it out between two pieces of plastic and fry it make an oatmeal pancake it's hmm. a little honey bear and squeeze honey on that that was my morning meal to get some energy but i'd i'd crack 15 to 18 eggs in a gatorade jar just crack them and pop them and fill that Gatorade jar. I'd pour some piccani sauce in there and go ahead and add some salt for preservative. And I would scramble eggs. I had really? cans of Spam. I cooked and ate like a king the first few days until I started killing deer, hogs. Yeah. And I fried hog nuts, javelina, javelina liver. You know, everybody that knows liver knows pork liver is better than any liver there is. And javelina liver is even better than that. 
I, I ate like a king out there. You know, it was like fine cuisine in some New York restaurant. I mean, I'm a cooking dude, you know. I yeah. know how to cook. But I took white gas stove. I had an Optimus 123 stove about four inches tall. And a little old tank on it would burn 45 minutes full throttle. And I'd tone it down and cook at the right speed, you know. And I could probably cook an hour plus. One time I cooked a bunch of turkey. And that thing must have ran better than 45 minutes by another 20 to 25 minutes. I throttled it down and just kept it at a low cook. Yeah. And I'd cook a batch and I'd put some more meat in there, fly it up and cook it, you know, cook the thighs, the drumsticks slit in half. And that way I had my meat cooked up. If it was cool weather and I knew the meat would keep already fried, I'd go ahead and fry up a batch, you know. I'd fry up a bunch of hog meat or a bunch of turkey and then I'd carry it with me and not have to cook for two days. Yeah. You know, a lot of times I'd go in on a hunt, I'd take a bunch of leftover barbecue, you know, and go eat a bunch of ribs and buy a heavy and take some of that with me, too. Just start yeah. eating cooked barbecue ribs, you know. We, all us guys took good food. Mm-hmm. You know, plenty of tortillas, you know. One of the things I liked more than anything was some oysters, smoked oysters in a can. Okay. That was a treat. Corn nuts. You crave something crunchy to help brush your teeth. Yeah. When I went on the 27-day hunt, I didn't take a bath. I didn't brush my teeth the whole time. And this buddy of mine heard that. And when he came in the taxidermy, I was out there in Fort Worth and met, met up with me. And he goes, man, I heard you had a hell of a hunt. And I said, yeah. And he goes, you didn't take a bath the whole time you were out there? I said, no. He said, you didn't even brush your teeth? And I said, no. He said, man, I bet your breath stunk. And I said, you ought to have smelled my ass. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you know, they, they don't understand what that entails. A lot of people that never camp out, hunt out for any length of time, they go to their lease and they got some cabin there. Then they go full wheel to their deer stand, sit in it, and assassinate some poor deer eating off their feeder or food plot and then call that hunting. They don't understand what I did. Yeah. It's a whole different level of hunting. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like a step back 100 years in time. Right. I was getting a dip one time. I had this world-renowned hunting consultant with me, and I'd put dough and heat piss on this hawks in a Ziploc bag, hang them in a tree when I'd sit up to rattle. And then we got ready to move, make another, you know, cover another four or 500 yards before we made another rattle. And I got me another big old dip of Copenhagen, and I had that dough and heat piss all over my fingers. Oh, no. And he said, you ain't even going to wash that dough and heat piss off your fingers before you get that tobacco in your mouth? And I said, are you kidding I said, that's what gives it its outlaw, authentic flavor. <laughs> he said, you're the last of the mountain men, Charlie. He said, you were born a hundred years too late. Yeah. And he'd seen it all hunting all over the world. But yeah, I didn't want to ruin that authentic outlaw flavor on that hunt. <laughs> oh, my gosh. How many deer did you end up taking on the 27-day hunt? I brought six bucks out. Yeah. I was at this little lone Oakmont the last day, the whole day, watching the highway from about five, six hundred yards off. And the weather hit again, which made me sick. I was like, man, I want to stay. And I was just fighting that urge to just turn around and go back and stay another week because I had that set up with my ride man. If I wasn't there that night, he was going to come back a week later. So I said, I'm going to go back to the brush and hunt another week. That front hit, and I was sitting there just mad about it. But I'd ran out of all my carbohydrates. I had no more biscuit flour, no more oatmeal, no more chewing tobacco. I'd gone to red men then, and I didn't have no more nothing, okay? I had white gas. I could have rendered fat 
off of hogs. But, you know, we had grease to fry with. But I didn't have any carbohydrates, and I'd already lost 26 pounds those 27 days. I found that out when I got out and weighed. I went in there at 194, come out 26 pounds lighter, solid rock. Well, I was sitting there wishing I could go back and hunt when the weather came in on me that last day. And I sat there and I said, well, I'm going to just kill some time and look at my racks. Mm-hmm. I had two bundles of three. So I got them loose on the straps. And then I just pulled them two bundles I had banded together with the strapping tape. And when I pulled them apart, they just went... And a big 10-point just goes, kaboom, kaboom, and jumps right in my face. I'd rattled him up just pulling them two, you know, three, three bucks in each rack to yeah. apart. That rattled him up. That's when I really went crazy. I went, I'm going to go back. I don't care if I starve to death. And then I went, I can't realistically. I cannot do it. I'm famished. I've got to come out. But, I mean, he wasn't quite a shooter, but he was a real pretty buck. Mm-hmm. You know, he's a five-year-old deer. But he just jumped in my lap just from the sound I made pulling them horns apart. Oh, my gosh. I mean, that's how game those bucks are. That was his home. Mm-hmm. He staked out that mott. You know, it was about a 100-yard circle of live oak. And that was his home. You know, he heard that. He's, who's in my house? You yeah. Know? What's the What's the biggest buck you ever took off, a, off one of the ranches? I brought out two 180s, but... You know, I'm not going to give away the stories on them yet because there's some extenuating circumstances to them that I want to tell in the book first. But, you know, one of them in particular. But I let a lot of deer over that get away. I was just, all this storytelling lately has reminded me of bucks that I haven't, you know, written about yet. Yeah. And it's coming to mind. And I'm thinking, man, the people that I took with me cost me another half a dozen of the biggest deer I've ever seen. And I'm, you know, I'm pissed about it. It's like, hey. Shit happens. You know, you can't carry them all out. It's hunting. It ain't killing. It ain't shooting. It's not a shooting gallery, you know. Mm-hmm. They get away. And the bigger they are, the more likely they are to be the one that got away. You know, it happens. It's part of it, you know. I think in the first podcast you told me about a, a mainframe 10 by 10 or a 9 by 9. The, one t- the, t- the typical. The yeah, the typical. Yeah. Is that the biggest deer you've ever seen? That's the biggest typical by far. Really? He'd outscore everything typical I ever saw by almost 30 inches. Is he, would he have been a world record typical? No, I think? think he was somewhere under or over 200. I know he was over really? 190. I know he was. He had 23 or 24 points typical. He had, <laughs> he had more than, you know, all your fingers on both sides. I mean, when it came out, it was blinding. You couldn't separate them in your vision to try to count. It's yeah. too many. You couldn't even try to count his points. And they were perfect, just perfectly uniform. Every bit of that deer was matched equally on each side. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if he had an even number of points. He looked that even. And instead of being 23, he was probably a perfect 24. I couldn't believe that deer. I'm going to end up getting God to show that deer to everybody for me and back <laughs> me up on it because it was that big. Yeah. And his eye guards were about 10 inches. He, he had every, everything long. The beams rocking here and came all the way up to the top height of the points. There was nothing short. He, he was in his perfect prime. Why couldn't you shoot that deer? I had a Jeep pouring in on me. And then they parked right outside the mud on me, and he kept standing there, and I almost shot him. Just because? I, I went into a trance. I almost shot him. I was going <laughs> to shoot. My spirit was saying, shoot that deer. And I took a step, two steps forward, got on a live and got squeezing on the back of his neck. And mm-hmm. when the trigger collapsed, when it, I mean, the next thing you hear when they do that, when they collapse, and I'd had that trigger worked on. I had that trigger brought down from three and a quarter to about two and a half. 
and it was real sweet. You just barely start touching it, but you would feel it move before it went off. Well, it moved. It was fixing to go off, and I caught myself, and I said, you can't shoot that deer. They're right outside the mud on you. You're going to get your ass caught. You better get your shit together. Mm-hmm. You've heard the rest of the story. You got it on that other interview, but to this day, that's the biggest deer period score-wise I will ever see. You know, typical. Yeah, I'll never see one like that again. I don't think anybody that lives in the state of Texas will ever see a deer that typical again. There was that big deer in Oklahoma killed recently that was a real big Gunner typical. Womack. That that bow killed. He went to the same yeah. college that we went he to. He looked like that with another point in between every one of them. Really? I, they were so close together. It's why I say fingers. They were this close together. The points on the buck I'm talking about were so close together, it was like your fingers on your hand. Mm. And they were all 10 and 11 inches long all the way up. I never saw nothing like that. I never dreamed about a buck that big. You know, I never thought I would see one like that in that ranch. You know, I know where he lived. I know where, if if I was to lease legal, a pasture in the Kennedy, I've got three or four choices I would love to lease and hunt. But right there'd be one of them <laughs> looking for that buck's descendant. Yeah. And if I had to farm him, so to speak, by passing him two or three years to get as big as that in age, I would. I'd let him get fully blown like his grandpa. Yeah. Yeah. That was in 1982. Yeah, December of 82. And so do the math. Every seven years, there's been another one like that, give or take two or three years, taking his place because I didn't kill him. He's still there. His genetics are still there. Yeah. That deer's genes are still there. And all the deer I killed, they're still there. I never hurt that ranch. Out of all the deer I killed over that length of time, and the world-renowned hunting consultant with me knows a lot about management and all, and he told me, he goes, I wouldn't let him shoot all these 155 bucks he was wanting to kill. And he got mad, and I said, I don't care. You're not shooting them. Mm -hmm. And he told me, he goes, boy, you know, you really do a good job of managing this ranch. Yeah. And, you know, all the deer I killed were seven, eight. I killed one, two five-and-a-half-year-old deer. The double-drop deer and another with 14-and-a-half-inch back tines and a unicorn point. I killed two five-and-a-half-year-old deer out of all my trophies. The rest were six, seven, and eight, and John nine. I didn't take nothing out of that ranch. I never heard. I didn't put a dent in it. All those bucks had already passed their genes for three, four years running before I killed them. They're still there. Big John's still there. There's guys hunting that telephone pasture right now, legal, and they can't kill one like that. And they'll tell you they're hunting fence lines, feeders. They're not rattling it on the right day with the right weather and and going about it right. Big John still lives in those woods. You know, those big deer are still there. They're just so smart now with all the pressure, I might not be able to fool one of them and get him to show himself. Mm -hmm. But stay hid. You're not going to get them out of the brush. You, you probably can't rattle those deer like you used to. It's a different ball game now. But that harsh weather is when they're stirring. You know, when it's in the 40s and 30s and, and it's cold and rainy all day, you kill those deer in the middle of the day. You kill really? them from 11 to 3. That's, but you got to stay busy hunting all day to get one of them. They don't wanna, nobody wants to put that kind of effort in it. I was so crazy about them then. That, you know, I outdid a lot of people with just... I loved it that much. I couldn't get enough of it, you know. It was just like some guy with a pick line, you know, morphine 
Every time he wanted to hit a button and get another buzz, just get another bump, just hit the button. Every time I sat down to rattle, I knew there wasn't no telling what I was fixing to see. <laughs> when you're on a place like that, where you know the very next rattle might be a 230 double drop, you don't want to sit still waste your time. You'll, yeah. you'll kill your body trying to cover all the ground you can in an area like that to make it happen. Right. you got to do your part. I work my ass off for all them deer. People think that poaching's an easy, lazy deal. I work a hundred times harder poaching than them guys did riding around in their trucks on their lease or their four-wheeler or their sitting their deer stand doing nothing. Read a magazine till one goes out in front of the feeder. That wasn't me. I was a hunter. You know, I hunted hard. I covered a lot of ground. I walked hundreds and thousands of miles to do what I did. I earned them deer. I like to see them get their fat rear out of their truck, leave it at the highway, and do what I did. They come out of there about fifty pounds lighter, <laughs> and in a week. <laughs> What's the craziest non-typical deer you've seen on any of those ranches? Besides the Tarrant County buck you already talked about. That was a good one. I think the best non-typicals I saw was on the King Ranch with George that night, spotlight coming out. When we lit up that water, 200 deer, and they was almost all bucks. They looked all bucks. There was two separate wads and a vacancy, a vacancy you know, between the two sort of at the back. I saw two bucks run off with what looked like 40 points. I can show you a picture of a 45-point buck that's in the Texas Big Rack book. I think you sent me that picture yeah. before. They looked like that. All the tines had trash sticking straight out. You know, like four or five fingers of it on every tine. And when I saw those two bucks, I started telling George, shoot him, shoot him, shoot him. He didn't see him. He was already zeroed in on this big old boat paddle I guard on this 10-point right there close, and he shot him. But they were all starting to spook, and so he had to make a quick decision. But had he laid his eyes on the two I saw at the back of the bunch, he would have been shooting at them running. Mm-hmm. Those are the two craziest non-typicals I, t- together. Uh, you, you know, they were smarter than all of them. They were standing at the back anyway, and then they hauled ass. Now, they were probably 250 yards running from us, but you could see all them points sticking out with that light on it. Incredible. You know, there'd been heavy fog the night before, but it hadn't settled in again yet, and it was. I got a clear look at them. I know what I saw. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, we... We stirred the hornet's nest. I had some friends that we showed those bucks to from that hunt. Mm-hmm. Go back out there and hit that food plot. They were waiting on them. They caught them. See, I knew better than to go back after leaving them two laying there. One of them had one back strap halfway out. I had laid him open and I laid both back straps out to the side and was going up one, taking it off the ribs when I heard the plane come in over us. Mm-hmm. And that's the way they found them. They found mine with the head just cut off where I blew the neck open real bad. And then they found that one of George's with both back straps hanging out. And I already started, when I laid him back, I was caping him some on both sides, but I said, I'm gonna go and get them back straps out, stick them in the pack, and then we had we got interrupted with that plane. We had to haul ass, but that you know, I mean, that had them hotter than you know, fresh on fox in a forest fire. They they staked that place out, and then these other guys from Bishop went in there and got caught. They were gonna go light up that same big water deer. I told them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they said they were waiting on us. We shouldn't have went. Yeah. Yeah, Sting. That's that's wild. 
So, uh, were you guys eating? I know you're eating some of them while you're back in there, but what are you doing with with the meat on most of these deer? Are you taking the back straps and rolling, or some of them just caping? Well, you can only eat so much deer meat in two or three days, and by then you're going to kill another buck. But what I found was I'd rather eat hog meat, so I wasn't too big on the deer meat. I'd get the heart, the liver, the underloins. I liked eating that. What I liked eating on the the whole of things was the hogs and what i liked was the ham of a 40 pound hog i'd take the top of those hams off tender and marble and fat and just fry them up like pork chops see that you, if you're eating consuming that marble fat you're getting energy from it it yep. helps sustain your carbs you know you're getting some energy to run on but the backstrap in a hog unless you got a big thick pat on the back and you leave that there and eat that too you, you're missing something that'll give you energy you just go around eating lean meat and you're famished in no time really doing that carrying that kind of weight fighting that much brush in the terrain you know the hills the dunes you burn everything you eat nearly yeah you know people don't understand what a what a deal it is it's it's an endurance challenge yeah yeah it is it's a marathon I ought to tell that story. This is another funny one that involves Tarrant County, but I met this man, the world-renowned hunting guide consultant that I ended up taking. Met him on an out-of-season mule deer hunt at Marathon, West Texas, on a lease he'd had for a couple years, but he wasn't going to have it anymore, so he wanted to shoot the place up on his way out. And he had this Chevy Blazer, two-tone blue and white, and he was going to drive that back to Fort Worth after this hunt. So my boss at the time, this guy on that traffic circle there, Westworth, he set it up, and we go. And I borrowed his dad's 240 Weatherby Mag to make a long shot in that open country out there like it, left my 7mm in his shop. Well, we get out there. I kill a good buck. I made a 600-yard shot on him, but I broke his leg. It dropped so much at 600 yards. I thought he was five. I didn't hold high enough and broke his leg and ended mm-hmm. up getting him. And the consultant got one both of them were just good 20 inch inside tall bucks you know good bucks and my boss had a temper problem well he was upset that we got bucks he didn't get buck you know and so he didn't want to stay he wanted to come back and watch football with his dad and i said well i'm not going back snow hit and it was snowing like hell and me and this guy wanted to stay and hunt and i said i'm with him i'll just ride back with him and his blazer you can go on and he, man, we got kind of in a fight well he left after he left this guy looked at me and he said are you thinking what i'm thinking i said yeah yeah he's liable to go turn us in this guy had a temper problem i said you know we probably ought to get the hell out of dodge he said i believe you're right so we load the, all the meat. We had all the meat on them bucks and big mule deer bucks. I wasn't about to waste that out there with the vehicles to get it. So we fill the back of that blazer with them big ice chest full of all that meat and the heads caped off. And that boss of mine must have ran into the snow and decided the same thing we did because we got a motel halfway back around Cross Plains, and then we came on in the next morning. When we were coming in the next morning, we passed this hothead boss of mine. We just went on around him act like we didn't see him i was trying to get back get a guy down the neighborhood nearby that was training under us to give me his key to get me in the building to get my keys and my gun and all my stuff i was going to quit this guy i've had it with his temper so we pass him and we go to that neighborhood where this guy that had a key to the shop training under us and he wasn't there while i'm knocking on the door i knew where he lived i was pretty sure 
this guy turns around and I talk with the neighbors and I said, this guy next door, the taxidermy kid learning. He goes, yeah, that's him. I said, all right, well, he's gone. Well, just as soon as they shut their door, bang, I hear this guy back into this parked car on the side of the road, this truck. He just smoked it backing up without being able to see out that window, that blazer and all that snow and everything. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so I went, oh God. And I ran out there to the street and he he kicked it in the ass and came pulling up to me and he goes, get in. (laughs) So I knew we were gonna hit and run and all that so yeah. i go around and get in and i go right left right left i'm directing him through that neighborhood because i knew where to come out at and so i said all right left right here and we're hauling ass we're flying around all these streets and we fly around this curve there on a building but 377 south of the weatherford traffic circle and when we did here's two fort worth cops sitting there in their squad cars head on talking to each other out the driver's side windows and I went, well, this is it. I got away with all this shit I've done down in South Texas, and I'm going downtown in Cowtown, my hometown right now. We got these two out-of-season mule deer, no tags, they're out-of-season. We're going down. They looked up at us, and they went right back to talking. We barely had enough room to get around them. We had no stickers on the window, yellow New Mexico plates on that blazer, we stood out like a neon sign. I could not believe they hadn't already got an APB out on a hit and run on us. Mm-hmm. It just happened about two minutes prior. But, you know, called down to the station and they could have put out the APB. We, we should have been caught right then. Yeah. But they went back to talking. He goes, well, what do you think they were talking about? I said, probably deer hunting. So we go. I said, take me behind the shop to the alley. And we unload my buck, all the meat and an ice chest behind the dumpster and the head in the trash bag. And I said, now take me down to the bar, Circle M bar on the 183 down there. So he takes me down there, and I said, all right, I'll call a friend of mine to come get me. I said, I want out of this vehicle. I mean, I was a nervous wreck. And I said, I'll tell you what. I said, it's been fun, it's been real, and it's been real fun. But I said, you're too hot for an outlaw like me. I said, good luck. Good luck making it to Dallas. <laughs> but he made it home without getting pulled over. But then he ends up going on a whitetail hunt with me. We went first over in that uh, Pilon CO. Then the next year, we hunted the Kennedy on a seven-day hunt, got kicked out on the bay and walked all the way through the county, hunted seven days all the way to the highway and came out there. But, you know, that guy loved to hunt as much as me. He's addicted to it. He hunted all over the world, you know. And uh, what was funny was when he called me that second year, I said, hey, what do you think? He, it was in the days of Tim McGraw, and he said, I like it, I love it, I want some more of it. <laughs> That's the name of that story, Kevin. Yeah. This guy was a riot, you know. We hit it all great, but he had two accidental discharges in that Kennedy hunt. The second one, I said, Fred, and he goes, somebody just shoot me. And I said, don't tempt me. I, you know, the first time could happen to anybody. When it happened again, I got really mad. I mean, you know, he could have shot me or his boy in the leg. You know, something could have One of us could have got killed. Mm-hmm. You can't handle, you're a world-renowned hunting consultant. You can't handle a gun safer than that. Something ain't right there. He said, well, it goes off even when it's, uh, he said, I've got to put it off safety to break the boat. I said, I wouldn't own a gun like that. You know, consequently, I, I do. But, you know, that wasn't the one I was used to, you know. To me, it ought to be against the law for any gun to have to be off safety when you break the boat. Mm-hmm. shouldn't be that way. 
there should have never been a, a law allowing them to be designed that way. They're dangerous. I've seen others discharged. Yeah. You know, guiding these kids and stuff with their parents down on that game ranch. And we've had guns go off there and blow a hole in the cab of the truck, shoot a hole in the side of the truck. We, You know, you, you don't even want to turn around and look and see who's had their head blowed off when something like that happens. Uh, I hate being, I'm, I'm about through guiding and hanging around people that, you know, don't know how to handle a weapon. Yeah. You know, I could end up shot by one. <laughs> Be the next Chris Kyle. Oh, my God. The game ones might stage it, you know. Well, make it look like a Chris Kyle killing. <laughs> so, for people that are looking forward to part two, I mean, all the YouTube comments we got are people looking forward to part two. Oh, yeah. They want to, they want to know. I mean, what, are, what, what can we expect for. Yeah, I'm hoping to have it by Christmas now. I've just got to see how this surgery goes. That's standing yeah. in my way, you know, and I've just been to the doctor last week about it, and, you know. The plastic surgeon's the one going to have to do it, but yeah. you know, he's he's acting like he's got cold feet and he wants all my records, and I you know I need that behind me. If I don't get any action out of this surgeon, I'm going to be able to go ahead and complete it. I'll worry about this area last. You know, I'm trying to get it behind me, but if I can't, I will be able to get the book quicker. I'll be able to finish it quicker. In the meantime, they need to get ready to get my buddy's book before the stories are lost. <laughs> yeah, what's for people looking out? What's your buddy's book that's coming out? It's it's a same sort of deal with a whole lot more history of South Texas. Really? You know, yeah, with him growing up down there, it's going to be an interesting read for me because hmm. he knew a lot that I didn't know. You know, from him growing up down there. You know, that's the name of the book before the stories are lost, and it'll be out in about three more weeks. Yeah. He's got it at the at the printers now. Cool. Yeah. No, I mean anybody that liked my book will love his too. Yeah. So, so what are what kind of stories are we looking at in part two? Just a bunch of uh, more outlaw hunting stories. Yeah, and then my spiritual aspect of it all. I've got a heck of a testimony. You could say it another way, but it, it's bizarre. It's twisted. It's going to be mind-boggling. People are going to go unbelievable. I mean, when they see that part. That's the purpose behind the book anyway. The, the storytelling, the hunting, you know, the Bible says a man's gift makes room for him. I've got a testimony that needs to be heard. And this is my way to get everybody to hear it. That's simple. Now, I've got a large audience already, mm-hmm. and it's getting bigger by the day. And it'll be enormous once I unleash part two. It's going to blow wide open. I'm telling you, there's some shocking stuff in it, mm-hmm. really shocking. And America needs to hear it. And they're fixing to. It's going to happen. But I, I've had no control over it taking this long. I just think that's the plan and timing of God, you know. He didn't want it all out sooner. Yeah. It's going to come out when he wants it out. And it's come, I think it's around the corner, you know. So everybody needs to get ready. It, it's going to be one of those fasten your seat belts, prepare for liftoff, you know. A guy said it best one time. He said, man. He said, that sounds like it's going to be hotter than Harry Potter. <laughs> That's about right. That's about right. That's pretty close. It's going to be double t- Nobody's going to be expecting this. So I'm going to leave it at that. So these after these 22 years of, of outlaw hunting, is there any part of it you regret? or Not at this stage. I mean, I'm done. I wouldn't do it again. Right. Because it's not worth the risk to me. I'm not going to jail over it. I don't recommend it. I don't recommend anybody stick their neck out over anything that Mm -hmm. would carry a prison sentence. Right. Because that's what you're looking at. When they first changed the law, I heard a story that these uh, guys from Colorado thought Texas was easy. 
Colorado had stiffer game laws than we had at that time. Mm-hmm. Well, then we get tough. Well, we didn't notify everybody in other states. Here comes these Colorado guys down to West Texas and, and did what they've been doing. They lit up West Texas killing all these mule deer. Well, they got caught, but they got caught under the new law. They had wives and families and jobs, and they're stuck down here in prison. They wrecked their whole life. Now, the only one I've ever heard got it worse than that, this guy was hunting South Texas, and he decided to go across the border and chase the girls. Well, he gets over and gets in a fight and goes to jail for six months. They took his truck. They, you know, took his boots. They let him out six months later. He said, where's my truck? Where's my boots? They locked him back up another six months. <laughs> His parents and wife and kids and all were gone on with their life. They thought he was dead. They had him legally declared dead. They didn't know what happened to him. Really? Yeah, and he comes walking back across the border when they let him out that second time. He shut up. He didn't say nothing. It destroyed his whole life. All just to go over there and sneak in a little time with the girls and shit. That, that wasn't worth it. Mm-hmm. That's about what you're going to do to your life right now if you get caught poaching. You're going to shit can everything about your life. You'll lose your wife, your kids, your job, your car, your boat. You'll lose everything you got. That ain't worth it. If you're going to risk that, go after an armored car with three or four million cash in it. <laughs> you know, that's what I got to say. Yeah. But, I, you know, I got, you know, looking back, it's like a lot of fond memories. I've got some bad ones. But, you know, I regret those bad ones. I've got some bad memories. You know, life shouldn't have treated me the way it did, but it did. Yeah. Hey, rain falls on the just and the unjust. I've had my share of ups and downs. You know, but when you look at all the good times I've had, you know, there's no comparison. <laughs> <laughs> if I could do it all over again and go through the bad to get to do all the deer hunting, I'd do it again. Yeah. If that's what you want to know, yeah, I'd do that again. I'd take the hits and the heartache and all the downtime. You know, even this cancer. This cancer's on top of all the bad that was already in my history. All right? That wasn't wasn't fair. It kind of unbalanced it some. But going forward with some money to hunt legal, that's going to make it up to me. Mm -hmm. The cancer will come and go. It's, It's going now. It's almost gone. Yeah. But I had to stay in the game. I couldn't let that win. There's a whole lot about this, too. You know, there's, there's a lot of untold about the cancer itself and, and what actually happened to bring it on into a fully aggressive state that I'm going to tell in part two. Mm-hmm. It's also part of my testimony. You know, so I, I can't explain any of that without going into it for another... You know, take days to explain that, but I'm going to write about it briefly in the end of the book. And they're going to understand what happened there. Well, that sounds good. I I appreciate you coming on. Yeah, I enjoy it. I, you know, I'm getting where I'm having more fun telling the stories. <laughs> seems it seems to mean more to people to hear it told live than feel the drama and the emotion and all the intensity, you know, on a podcast than just reading. Yeah. This I hit this beautiful girl up a couple of days ago. I said, "Hey, how about a free copy of my book for being so beautiful? She's a huntress, you know, yeah. heavy duty here in Texas. I think her title is Texas Huntress. And she said, oh, I very seldom get time to do any reading. She said, but you need to make a movie out of that. Yeah. <laughs> I hear that all the time. 
I think it's going to happen. It's Is there just, any plans on it right not now? Nothing. Not, I ain't got no call from the Eastwood Studios yet, but, it, you know, after part two, I see that happening. I really yeah. do, because I know what's coming in part two. Other people don't. That's the movie deal. That's really? the part that makes it a movie. This stuff here will make newspaper stands, but that will be the crust of a movie potential. It could happen then. Once part two's out, I expect something like it'll start cooking. If they think that already, I guarantee part two will do something like that. Yeah. And a lot of people think that. I'm just, I'm along for the ride. Let's just see how far God wants to take my story. You know, it's my ticket. Yeah. That's fair. Well, I appreciate you coming on. Uh, where can people get the book? Right now, you just need to call me. I still don't have my little office finished and my computer hooked back up so the website's down. I haven't even been able to tweak it and tell people I do have the reprint. But you can call me at 817-648-8098 or Gmail me at 56charlesbeatty at gmail.com. And I'd be glad to mail one out. But, you know, right now it's just mail-in orders, you know. Yeah check your money order and i send them right out cool yeah well thanks for coming on i really appreciate it man yeah christian i'll be back we're yeah. gonna be back with I'll part be, two i'll be back after part two i guarantee <laughs> you <laughs> it's gonna get hairy hey guys thank you so much for consuming the hunter's advantage podcast we really appreciate it and we really do do the podcast for you all and just to stay in tune with that and what you guys want to hear, feel free to message us on Facebook or Instagram on who you would like to see on the podcast next.